Hey, how's it going everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to Lucky Episode Number 13 of the Essential X Labs, where I come to you as always from the very squeaky chair sat before my very creaky little card table I've got folded, or unfolded I should say, in the, uh, the room I currently occupy, which I have yet to completely move into just yet. Ah, uh, boy, you know, some days it feels like we're just never, ever going to be settled here, and I will, I will never have a, a permanent desk that won't shake, rattle, and uh, squeak. But enough of my problems here. Let's get into some problems that the X-Men might run into. This is X-Men number 9, January 1965 cover date, so we are in 1965 now, or at least cover dated. Uh, the story is called Enter the Avengers. Written and edited by Stan Lee, pencils Jack Kirby, inks Chick Stone, letters S. Rosen, colors? Well, we don't need no stinking colors, right? Uh, but in honesty, if anybody knows who's coloring these things, they are uncredited. Please, let me know so I can maybe give them a little bit of credit here. Uh, cover price, 12 cents. And uh, this is a relatively iconic early cover here. You'll recognize it if you see it, I'm sure. Here we've got a cross-section where we got the X-Men battling the Avengers on the surface, and then below the surface, we got Professor X in a weird, like, tready tank wheelchair pointing a gun at, uh, well, this new character, a new evil character here called Lucifer. And his model appears to change by the panel here. Lucifer is, uh, very bizarre looking. I mean, if you were to look at this cover, you might mistake him in passing for, like, a miscolored Doctor Doom. But inside the book, you might think you're looking at a sort of kind of Magneto-alike. So, uh, not the greatest design from old King Kirby here, must say. Um, now, oddly, this issue actually received one of those milestone reprints. You remember those reprints we got in the 90s that had, like, the silver border around them, right? This one got one of those, and I can only imagine we got that because... I mean, this issue gives us a little bit more about Professor X's origin, right? Um, probably... The reprint probably had very little to do with the fact that, you know, we had a clash with the Avengers here because back in the early 90s, back in the mid-90s even, people didn't really care about the Avengers. And uh, I tell you, I miss those days. Um, now, anyway, let's crack this sucker open. We're going to skip, you know, our customary Silver Age spoilery splash page, as we usually do here, since it usually takes place somewhere in the middle of the book, you know. It's just something to get us in there hot. We're going to skip it. And we're going to start at the beginning, where we find ourselves on a large cruise liner traveling east across the Atlantic Ocean. Suddenly, a fog lifts, and the crew realizes that they're just about to crash directly into an iceberg. Hopefully, their, uh, their hearts will go on. And uh, I think that's a movie reference. I mean, look at me being sort of kind of relevant here a quarter century later, citing the soundtrack from a movie I never saw. That's what you get from, uh, from old Chris here. Anyway... It would appear that all hope is lost. The captain instructs the crew to brace for impact because there is no avoiding this thing. But then, Zark! A pair of red beams pulverize the berg, saving the ship and everyone on it. Well, how in the hell can this be? Well, naturally, our feareds and hateds are on board. On the deck, Cyclops drops to the floor completely exhausted from going full blasty on the berg. Warren rushes to his side and helps him back to their quarters. Seeing this, uh, an old couple comments that, you know, kids these days just don't have the stomach for a boat ride, thinking Scott is just a, a weakling. Now, inside the cabin, Iceman is producing some bobby cubes to uh, cool Scott's sweaty brow, and that sounds like it could be the start of an erotic fanfic. 
Anyway, uh, Jean uses her TK to hold the cubes near Scott's dome, which was apparently exactly what he needed. Beast then uh, bounces over with an adorable little kettle of iced tea for the boss man. Now at this point, Scott finally tells them why they're on this boat, and why they're headed toward Europe. I mean, about time, right? I mean, shouldn't the gang have asked for a little bit more info before packing their bags and, you know, boarding the ship? I don't know. Whatever the case, Scott informs them that Professor X had contacted him with a European mission. Just then, old Charlie X pops back into Scotty's mind to give further instruction. You see, he's still in that deep cave in the heart of the Balkans in search of Lucifer, just like we saw him last issue. Now, we learn here that Lucifer was responsible for Xavier not being able to use his legs anymore, despite the fact that he originally told us that it was a childhood injury. So I guess that's just another of the many lies for the Professor X lie pile. He tells Scott that, should he perish in this confrontation, he will need the X-Men to carry on, and also to take Lucifer out for him. He transmits the location to the kids before finding himself on a crazy slide, which sends him even deeper into the Earth. Where, a short distance away, Lucifer plots. He releases a, uh, an artificial dust devil. Now, if you live in a desert-like environment like I do, you'll know what a dust devil is, and it's basically a sandstorm, and uh, they really, really suck to drive through. Like, they really really suck to drive through. They're scary as hell to drive through. If you know, you know. <laughs> They're not fun at all. So, he releases Dust Devil. It goes up the ramp here. It catches up to Xavier and whisks him right into Lucifer's lair here. They face off with the baddie vowing to finish the job that he began all those years ago. Xavier then draws a pistol and fires at Lucifer, narrowly missing him. He calls Lucifer a murderer, which I suppose we'll have to take his word for, um, Lucifer warns Xavier not to harm him, as if he were to perish here, well, hmm, the entire world will be doomed. And, and I guess that Xavier never took that vow never to do harm like the, uh, the rest of his X-Men did. Maybe, maybe Xavier is working under the X-Force protocol, even this early on in the run. But we'll get back to this in a bit. At that very moment above ground, the X-Men admire the beauty of the Balkan village, and the kids chat, and Cyclops awaits orders. But then, nearby, the Avengers show up. Now, our Avengers roll call is Thor, Iron Man, Captain America, Giant Man, and the Wasp. Now, they have been brought here by Molyneux, uh, impelling its wielder to this exact location. You see, there's something evil here, they're just not quite sure what. Then, we get a comedy break. This weird tourist drives up in his hoopty. And Giant Man tells him it's unsafe and suggests that, you know, hey, maybe go the other way. Take, a, take another trip. Now, this idiot isn't quite understanding this, and so Janet begins tap dancing on his head. The dude freaks out, and he pedals to the metal through a crowd of innocent civilians. Um, and, I mean, there's, like, no way he didn't just cause a bunch of injury and maybe even death here. I mean, he's driving directly through a group of people. I gotta wonder if the Balkans have a branch of damage control, and if so, I guess they can clean this up. Anyway, the tourist then reaches the civilian X-Men and pleads with them to call the police. You see, he was just attacked by a tiny woman, a giant, and a long-haired construction worker. Cyclops wonders if this is connected to Lucifer and sends Angel off to do a little bit of scouting. Now Warren removes his shirt, releasing his wings, and takes to the sky. He doesn't even bother to get into costume because, hell, they're far away. Nobody's going to recognize him here. Which is just another reminder that the world used to be so much larger, right? 
Now the tourist sees Warren take off and decides that he's just done. He floors it, probably driving directly off a cliff. Well, hopefully, anyway. We jump back underground. Now Xavier crawls toward Lucifer looking for some answers, and uh, old Lucy's got him. You see, he's got a giant thermal bomb. And I gotta ask, where do all these Silver Agers find their bombs? I mean, they're just bombs everywhere in the Silver Age. Anyway, this bomb, from what we hear, it's strong enough to blow up an entire continent. Doesn't really matter which one. We'll find out which one later. Uh, And here's the thing. The bomb is wired to Lucifer's own heartbeat. So, if his heart were to stop, the bomb would go boom. Lucy does a little bit of bwahahaing before focusing his energy into a mental directional impulse machine. Whatever the hell that is. Now, with this machine, he will hurl an ionic ray at Xavier's X-Men to kill them. The prof does a bit of astral projection rather than just telepathically contacting his charges to warn them that the ray is incoming, and he reaches the team right in the nick of time. Now, once the dust from this ionic ray settles, the X-Men get into gear, and we do get an entire page of Beast, Iceman, and Marvel Girl changing clothes. Now, in a weird bit, Jean nearly steps into a teeny tiny hole in the ground. Like, one that she could have easily stepped over if she wanted to. Like, I have very tiny dogs, and I'm, I'm sure they could have stepped over this hole, too. Now, Cyclops warns her that she's about to step right into this teeny tiny hole. And so, rather than, like, walk around it, or just recalibrate her step and step over it, she telekinetically picks up a very small log to sort of kind of cover the teeny tiny hole, which then she steps on to safely pass. I mean, I'm probably not doing this scene any justice here, but... Boy, I mean, we we thought she was powerful as the Phoenix. I mean, we never knew that she had this kind of power. Anyway, from here, Xavier warns the X-Men about his current Lucifer situation because, of course, no harm can befall his foe. Otherwise, this bomb's going to go off. Just then, Thor emerges from behind a tree. I'm not quite sure why he was, like, just lurking there. Maybe he's a secret pervert. I don't know. He's then followed by the rest of the Avengers. Now, the X-Men, knowing that Lucifer cannot be taken out, asks the Avengers to back off, because, you know, they've got this one. Captain America thinks that this is poppycock. After all, they're all on the same side, right? Also, you know, I mean, the Avengers probably aren't going to kill Lucifer, right? Probably not. Iron Man comments about how any time they run into other super teams, it's always kind of contentious, which cites a meeting they had with the Fantastic Four over in FF number 31. He doesn't mention having blown up an atomic bomb in the angel's face. So, uh, selective memory, I guess. Or maybe he was drunk. I don't know. Gene then warns Scott not to antagonize the Avengers, as Thor claims his hammer demands that the evil below be destroyed. So, okay, maybe they are here to kill Lucifer. Sorry. Uh, Now, knowing that this is not an option, Cyclops lets loose with an optic blast, which knocks Molyneux out of Thor's hand, then ricochets the blast into Iron Man's armored face. Cap then throws his shield at the beast, who catches it with his tootsies. His, you know, his barefoot beat feet. Unfortunately, before he can hurl it back, Giant Man picks him up by the scruff of his costume, and Beast tries to talk all smart to him, but Pym don't want to hear none of it. It's worth noting, Angel attempts to pick up Thor's hammer here, and so we quickly learn that he is unworthy. I mean, as if there were ever any doubt. Then the Wasp, since she's a girl, attacks Jean Grey because she's a girl, and does so by pulling her hair because they're both girls. Beast and Iron Man then kind of slam dance into one another, you know, butts first, kind of like a mosh pit sort of situation. Then we jump back to the down below. 
Here, Lucifer's watching the battle play out up above. I mean, all villains have monitors and cameras everywhere. We, we just know that, right? He comments how Xavier is smart to sick his X-Men on the Avengers in order to protect him. Now, while Lucy postures, Xavier lets loose with a mental attack which mind-wipes the baddie with surgical precision. Lucifer is out cold, but his heartbeat remains regular. So, everything's cool, right? For now, anyway. Up above, the battle still rages. Now, just as Thor is about to pulverize Iceman to bits, Professor X telepathically contacts him to explain the situation. Now, after coming to terms with the fact that there's a creepy bald man in his head, Thor understands why the X-Men were trying to hold the Avengers off. Thor orders an end to the hostilities and assembles the Avengers to leave the X-Men in peace. Now, this will also be Thor's last order as Avengers chairman because they rotate the position each week, and wouldn't you know it, Thor's time expired right this very second. Not that it matters in the slightest for this story. I don't even know why they're mentioning it. Now, with the Avengers thankfully gone, Xavier directs his charges to Lucifer's lair. There, Cyclops and Angel are to assist him in deactivating this thermal bomb, and that's exactly what they go about doing. Now, this bomb begins to throb a bit as Lucifer's heartbeat grows weaker. At this point, Xavier pops back into Lucifer's brain and hopes that he can stimulate him a little bit. And then he, and we, I suppose, learn that the thermal bomb is aimed at Antarctica. And when it blows up the frozen continent, it'll cause the entire world to flood. Xavier as Cyclops used the full force of his optic blast, but narrowed down to a 2mm beam in order to fire through a little fissure in this bomb to deactivate it. And, well, that's exactly what he does. And so the world is saved by the people they hate and fear. We close out with Lucifer coming to, and he claims that the thermal bomb took him ten years to build, and he swears vengeance. Xavier tells him to go eat a bag, but then uh, lets him leave without incident, because the X-Men don't cause harm, remember? Except when Xavier came at him with a pistol, looking to kill him not too long ago, like five pages ago. Anyway, that's where we leave it. That's the end of the issue. Next time out, perhaps the shortest episode of The Essential x Lapsed, we're going to have a Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch adventure in the pages of Strange Tales. But that doesn't mean we're done with this issue just yet. Let's hop into the letters page here. We've got a lot of letters. Um, we're going to start with Paul in Connecticut. He compares Marvel's output to a glorious four-course meal, while at the very same time complaining about Stan recycling the same villains over and over again. So, I mean, which is it? Uh, he suggests that villains should not return to a book for exactly seven and one-half issues. So, uh, okay, dude. Um, really not a whole lot to say about this letter, other than it's, uh, it kind of comes from a couple of different angles there. Uh, Christine in Ohio is a fan of Cyclops becoming leader of the X-Men and thought that that was uh, worth jotting down on paper and affixing a stamp to an envelope to inform Stan Lee about. Donald in Washington... Now, he agrees with an earlier letter hack that the X-Men should get their own costumes and not just the standard, you know, uh, blue and gold uniform. He likes the villains' costumes so much better than the X-Men's because they are uh, unique, right? He wants to see Xavier stop being the central focus of the book, and he really likes Cyclops in the deputy leader role, and I agree. I agree. I feel like uh, every time I revisit these stories, which isn't very often, as mentioned at the start of this uh, little endeavor here, I'm always shocked by the, how the focus is pretty squarely on Xavier for, for a lot of this here. Of course, the X-Men are in the field, but they're fairly ineffective, right? They kind of just bias pages, 
And then at the end of the day, Xavier comes in, mind wipes somebody, and that's uh, that's kind of how it ends. I mean, dude even made the the X Men's graduation all about him. He was a uh, he was the focus of the photo. <laughs> he was in the very middle where everybody was kind of behind him. And also, he announced that he was leaving right during it to kind of put a pall over the uh, celebration here. Just make it all about him. He's uh, kind of a jerk. From uh, I've heard that somewhere, I think. Now, uh, this fellow likes Jean's cat's eye mask much better than the head sock. And this is actually something that I, uh, a question that I posed on Instagram here. I'm trying to familiarize myself with that platform a little bit more because I... Really don't know what I'm doing with it here, but uh, I posed the question on my, uh, I guess they're called stories, about uh, about well, this very thing. How we're exploring the letters pages in these early issues, and some of the things that keep popping up. And one of those things is Jean Grey's headgear. And so I posed the question, what do you guys like better, the cat's eye or the head sock? And we had... After, I think, 40-something votes, uh, the Cat's Eye Mask won 85% to the Head Sox 15%. So that's uh, pretty crazy. And, you know, I agree. I agree. I like the uh, the Cat's Eye one a lot better than the Head Sock. I've always liked, like, Cyclops' Jim Lee costume, where, like, his hair is out. He doesn't have that sock on his head. I The Head Sock is just, eh, to me. I've never really cared for it. But uh, that, our friend Donald here, he likes the Cat's Eye Mask better as well. He continues with another one of our uh, letters page tropes here. Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch, should they officially join the X-Men? And he isn't sure. He's not sure. He suggests maybe making them honorary members, but not official members. Uh, he also suggests that the X-Men stay bi-monthly because he doesn't want to overwork Stan and Jack. So what a, what a guy. What a guy. And he says that Chick Stone is finally coming into his own as, a, as an inker of Kirby's work here. So uh, Chick Stone can uh, rest easy knowing that uh, Donald and Washington... Uh, Says that he finally came around to his style. Next up, we got William in Michigan. He says that issue 7 was the best yet. Now, he wants Professor X to make frequent guest appearances now that he's, you know, out of the book for good. Uh... (laughs) Now, he likes Gene's cat's eye headpiece as well. He wants Wanda and Pietro to join the X-Men as well. And he wants to see more mutants appear. He's okay with the Brotherhood, but would like to see a little bit more new. And, uh, well, yeah, you'll, you'll get a little bit more new. Not, not much new, but uh, you'll get a little bit more new for the next little bit. Next up, Kenneth in Virginia. He considers the X-Men to be Marvel's greatest creation, which, uh, yeah, I think I agree. Now, he thinks Cyclops is best as a leader, because, in his words, Angel is nothing but a glamour boy, and Beast is too grotesque. Wow, I mean, hmm, Beast is too grotesque, he's just a bigger dude. Angel is a glamour boy, yeah, I, I mean, I, I've never heard someone actually <laughs> call someone that. At least not uh, unironically, but uh, okay, I guess your point is well taken. Uh, he likes Cyclops' conflicted demeanor here. He's, you know, conflicted. He's He's got this great power, but he is... Uh, He's kind of scared of it as well. He kind of doesn't like the fact that he's got this very dangerous power. And he compares him to Mr. Fantastic and Spider-Man in that way. And, uh, yeah, I can't argue that. I mean, Mr. Fantastic was very conflicted about causing the Fantastic Four to have their powers. Especially, you know, Ben Grimm being the the rocky thing. You know, he he felt a lot of guilt over that. And, of course, Spider-Man's entire gimmick is predicated on guilt, right? The whole with great power deal. Uh, He likes the X-Men in their blue and gold uniforms. Okay, he uh, he is not a fan of changing up their costumes. He likes them in the blue and gold, but 
he wants to see Iceman with his friggin' booties back I don't know why this booty thing keeps coming up And uh, that's another thing that I polled the folks on Instagram on And we'll uh, we'll talk about that maybe next episode or the episode after that When uh, I can better tabulate those results um, Next up, Steve in Illinois He wants to see more Magneto And Stan replies that this is definitely a minority opinion here And says that, you know, if this is the way they go with more Magneto Sure, they'll have a great book but they'll have zero readers Well, I mean, I guess they'll have one reader I mean, it, it stands to reason If you keep doing the same thing over and over again Less and less people are going to take part uh, You can take my word for that After 250-something episodes of X-Lapsed It's uh, definitely a thing uh, Kathleen in Kansas She wants Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch to join the X-Men So another vote in, in favor of that She doesn't like the Toad's costume Thinks it's too nice for such an ugly fellow Finally, she would like to see Namor taken down a peg or two And, uh, I mean, who wouldn't, right? Finally, we got Steve in Virginia Is that another Steve in Virginia? Oh, no, last one was Kenneth in Virginia Now, Steve likes Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch And he feels that they've already paid their debt to Magneto But, at the same time, he doesn't want them to join the X-Men He wants them to return to Europe and become crime fighters on their own Maybe get their own book or own little segment in a book He would especially like to see them rub elbows With other Marvel heroes So, um, Steve and Virginia If you're out there and you have never read anything past this You're gonna really be excited to hear Next episode, because that's exactly What we have Now that does it for the letters here Let's head into the, uh, the bullpen bulletins here The special announcements section Now Stan here poses some questions To the readership here Which is a really cool thing to do Especially since, I mean, we're going to see that uh, these questions that he's posing are genuine (laughs) It feels like he's actually taking the temperature of the readership here He wants to know if they should keep Cyclops on as the leader of the X-Men So that's the first question he poses here Also, in response to the somewhat contentious topic of costumes, he poses that question here He says, should the X-Men have separate costumes or continue in their blue and golds? So, another question Uh, He also wants to know if we want Professor X back, even in just a part-time basis. And I mean, I'm 60 years too late, but no, no, he could take a break. Um, He wants to know here if Iceman should get his booties back. So just fueling the fire there on the booty question. And then he goes on to give us a blurb for X-Men number 10 before remembering that he hasn't written it yet, which is adorable. He's like, hey, I'd like to tell you about X-Men number 10, but... uh, yeah, I haven't read it, written it yet, so I don't know what to tell you But it's going to be great It's going to be great A very, very Stan Lee thing to say From here, we've got our mighty, mighty Marvel checklist And we've got all the books coming out this month Including Fantastic Four number 35 Which features Dragon Man and Diablo Amazing Spider-Man number 21 Spider-Man vs. the Human Torch Avengers number 12 Maybe another book that Stan hadn't written yet Because in it, the Avengers are going to do something What? Well... You gotta read the book to find out Just below this we have a little bit of a typo It simply says, quote Fesser X gets back into action Unquote So I guess the X-Men blurb got clipped wrong here Thor 112 features Thor vs. the Hulk Strange Tales 129 features the Torch and Thing vs. the Terrible Trio And uh, Doctor Strange fights someone kooky Tales of Suspense number 62 Features the origin of the Mandarin And Captain America stopping a jailbreak Tales to Astonish 64, Giant Man vs. Atuma, and Hulk vs. the Leader. And Sergeant Fury number 14 features the Howlers vs. Baron Strucker's Blitzkrieg Squad. And that is uh, 
That is all the news that's fit to print for Marvel in whatever month this is. January, a cover date, I believe, of uh, 1965. That's the issue mostly cover to cover, minus the ads, which, uh, again, we might be uh, covering in some, in some form or fashion in the not-too-distant future. But for now, that's, uh, that's all we're going to do. And, uh, well, let's talk about this story a little bit. There really isn't a whole heck of a lot to say. We do find out a little bit about Professor X, right? We find out that Lucifer was the cause of his injury, which cost him the use of his legs, which is uh, different from what we originally had heard, where he was in a childhood accident. Don't know if that was just a, um, uh, you know, I mean, of course I know. (laughs) Stan probably forgot that he said that, or just had a good idea for a story to introduce a new villain, uh, and just needed a way to massage it into the story, hoping that, uh, or just assuming that only... You know, 40-year-old idiots 60 years later are going to remember that uh, the childhood injury was even mentioned in the first place. So I didn't really think quite as much about it as as I am, but uh, I guess that's my curse. Anyway, whatever the case, Lucifer really isn't, uh, he isn't the sensation that Stan and Jack might have hoped he would be. He only shows up, I want to say, less than 10 times between then and even now. (laughs) I think the last time he shows up was in a book that I I recently came across in the... uh, in the cheapo bin while trying to fill some holes from my ex-hiatus. Uh, the, I believe it was Astonishing X-Men Annual, where I want to say Professor X came back, but he was in, like, a cloned body of Phantom X? I mean, that sounds utterly insane, but I'm pretty sure that's the story. But yeah, I think Lucifer did show up in that, but he's not around very often. And honestly, how many stories can you tell with the guy anyway? Right, And I guess using the name Lucifer might be a little bit confusing, too, because I'm sure there's any number of demonic and uh, satanic characters who uh, who might want to go by that name who uh, this Lucifer would just uh, confuse the issue. So maybe he's more of an inconvenience than anything. He's also, you know, kind of boring. So stands the reason that we wouldn't see him all that terribly often. Now, this is the first confrontation between the Avengers and the X-Men. Now, of course, we know today they have a very storied... Friendship, rivalry sort of thing They've clashed before, they've teamed before uh, They were responsible for uh, Jobbing the X-Men in the Avengers vs. X-Men story that sent That kind of put the X-Men in the Backseat of the Marvel Universe for quite some Time and uh, I guess arguably uh, Still to this very day Are still uh, a step behind Where they ought to be because Well Marvel didn't have the movie rights So they had to throw their temper tantrum And make the X-Men look like crazy villains That uh, nobody could identify or empathize with Uh, Especially when compared to the virtuous And uh, blockbuster movie-having Avengers So this is the first time we see it And it's kind of a non-fight, right? It's a very, very brief little skirmish here The same, you know, we talked about this with the Fantastic Four We talked about this with Iron Man It's the Silver Age thing Where... Two teams or two heroes show up There's some sort of miscommunication Some sort of secret Some sort of mind control And, uh, well, it leads to a very brief skirmish And then ultimately a parting in peace and as friends Quite why Cyclops couldn't say Hey Avengers, um, sit down for a second We need to explain something to you You see, there's a bad guy underground Whose heart is connected to a thermal bomb That's going to blow up Antarctica And if they, if this guy is hurt, that bomb's gonna explode Instead of just doing that, Cyclops just blasts Thor And, and you know, hey, good on him Because he knocks Molyneux out of his hand I didn't know that was something Cyclops could do And I'm, I'm guessing Cyclops didn't realize it either But, uh, yeah, it's just one of those things Where most problems in the Silver Age Would be assuaged by just uh, communication 
just sitting down and talking or just standing there and talking, just saying, hey, this is why you can't do the thing. But then we wouldn't have had uh, Jack Kirby draw three or four pages of the Avengers and X-Men fighting. So I guess we take what we're given and... uh, well, that's about it. Um, other than that, not a whole lot to say about this issue. It was fun. Maybe not uh, something that'll rock your socks necessarily, but also not something that'll set them on fire. So a nice, safe story, perfectly fitting in with this era. And, uh, you know, I had a lot of fun discussing it. And I hope you all had a, had a decent enough time listening to me uh, stumble my way through it. So uh, now that'll take us to the end of the show here, where we do have one letter in the mailbag, and it's from our friend Doc Strange, Billy Dunleavy here. He's talking about X-Men number seven. Now in this issue, we had Beast and Iceman go to the Coffee Go-Go, where they met some uh, some uh, stoners and trippers and uh, weirdos and beatniks. And uh, he says, Street Poet Ray wishes he could be Bernard the Poet. Can you imagine Stan brainstorming this dialogue? I'm not Stan bashing here, I love the guy, but I'd pay to watch a documentary about his process for these Silver Age stories. Thanks once again, Brother Chris, and uh, thank you. Thank you for listening and writing in, and yeah, the the deep creative process behind um, writing about the barefoot beats and uh, all that trippy stuff here. It's really, really funny to think about, because I'm pretty sure Stan was probably in his early 40s at this point, so he was about my age. And he's writing about, uh, he's writing dialogue for, like, college-age kids who are into the beat scene and uh, into beat poetry and uh, hanging out at coffee houses and painting feet and probably a lot of hallucinogenics here. It would be like me writing, I don't know, in, like, text speak, you know? Do people still say fleek? Is that a word that people say? I mean, that would be like me writing that for someone, which feels... Ridiculously bizarre It felt really It made me want to vomit Just saying it So I mean I couldn't imagine Using kids these days words In telling a story So uh Seeing Stan do it Is is kind of uh Is kind of adorable And it's It's very very funny I would love to see How he's getting this information Is Is Stan hanging out At a At a coffee a go-go himself Just listening Is he doing the old Brian Bendis method Of people listening And just getting his uh Dialogue that way Or is he just looking at like a wide swath of humanity and just figuring, okay, this is how these people talk? (laughs) And I mean, you look at fiction, right? And how sometimes, sometimes real life influences fiction, right? Sometimes it's stuff that's in the zeitgeist or zeitgeist, however you say that word, that makes fiction what it is, that uh, informs a story and kind of guides a story through, you know, tone and vibe and uh, context gives context but sometimes it's the other way around right sometimes it's something that's written or born in fiction that becomes a cultural thing right this is something that reggie and i talked about a little bit i'm not sure if we made the air but when we covered street poet ray for the cosmic treadmill we were thinking like how much of beat poetry was informed by real life and how much of real life was informed by beat poetry you know, it, it's a weird chicken and egg sort of thing where if you write something that just captures the, the imaginations of people, it can in turn uh, affect and become culture. So it's, you got to wonder, like, all these things, all these little uh, niches like beatnikism, right? How much of that came from beatniks and how much of that came from people's perception of beatniks? 
I mean, taking it a step more into familiar territory for for those of us who are into comic books, and I'm assuming if you're listening to this program, you probably are into comic books. How much of, and I hate saying comic book culture or, God help me, geek culture, but how much of that is affected by the perception of comic book fans, right? I mean, people have talked about Big Bang Theory, the, uh, the comic book guy on The Simpsons and stuff. How much is that affecting the way people view comic book fans? It's, I, I'm definitely thinking way too hard about this and uh, perhaps being a little too precious by half in doing so, but these are the things that, uh, that Reggie and I used to discuss a lot, and uh, your, your missive here, Doc, made me think about it. It's you know, Stan writing for this other generation that he, he, you know, he, he's not a part of. And how much of it is is actually informed by first-hand experience or second-hand experience or just him throwing darts at a board and saying, like, okay, this is what they'd say. And, I mean, I could go from here into a huge thing about Bob Haney over on Teen Titans, right? How much of his dialogue is just so whacked out. And you could never imagine a human being saying these words, but he thought they did. And maybe they did. I wasn't around back then, but... It's just silly stuff like that that really, you know, gets the brain percolating here. And it's uh, just another byproduct of how fun it is to revisit these Silver Age stories every once in a while. You you might not want to do it every day, you know, but uh, every once in a while I think they're good for the soul. That said, thank you once again for writing in, Doc. It really, really means a lot to me. Speaking of which, if anybody out there would like to get a hold of me, I'm easy to get a hold of. I'm easy to find. You can find me several different places. No matter where you is, that's where I be. Uh, You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. You can find me on Instagram at 90sXmen, where you can even see that story about Iceman's booties, and you can vote. You can tell me if you like him barefoot or booted, and, uh, and we'll talk about those results, you know, in a couple of days. You can call into the X-Lapsed hotline at 623-396-JERK. Uh, for blog posts and show notes, you can head over to chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can chat us up on Facebook. Our little group is 90s X-Men, and you can find me there by my real name, Chris Sheehan. That's who I is and where I be, so you can find me there if uh, if you so desire. Finally, you can find the Chris and Reggie Comics Commentary Archive at chrisandreggie.podbean.com, available everywhere that the internet aggregates noise for your ears. And if while you're there you like what you hear, or at least appreciate the effort that goes into it each and every day, I would love for you to spread the word, share the show, maybe tell a friend or two, maybe drop a review if uh, you got a moment or two. I would really, really appreciate it. It would help the show. It would help me. It would make me feel a little bit less like I'm uh, wasting my life away. I'm kidding, of course, but uh, any help you can give would be very, very appreciated, and it would do my heart very, very good. Now, with all that said, I would like to thank you all so much for allowing me to be part of your day today. It really, really means a lot. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.
Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 14 of the Essential X Labs. In uh, what might just be the shortest episode to date, and uh, that isn't an indictment on the quality of the story we're going to discuss today. It's a perfectly fine story. It's a perfectly fun story. It's just short, and there really isn't a whole heck of a lot to it. Um, and also, I mean, we don't even have the X-Men in this issue. We're just following a couple of our side characters here who, uh, well, in recent years have been kind of divorced from the X-Books and from mutantum in general. But uh, back in, you know, early 1965, late 1964, they were about as X-Men as you can get. So let's hop into a Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch story that appears in Strange Tales number 128. Now, this had a January 1965 cover date. The story is called, well, Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch. Written and edited by Stan Lee, pencils by Dick Ayers, inks by Frank Ray. I don't think he's related to Frankie Ray. Uh, their, their last names are spelled differently, but it's still funny to say. Uh, Lead is Audie Simek, colors... Who's on first? I don't know. Uh, cover price, 12 cents. And uh, this is just half of uh, Strange Tales here. This is the Human Torch and Thing portion of the book we'll be discussing. And we open with Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch having something of an argument regarding their futures. Now, we might assume that they're at Magneto's dilapidated mansion, you know, that one that's on the Windy Hill, uh, because the way this place is decorated, it kind of looks like it, but if we were to think that, we would be very much wrong. Anyway, the Maximoffs have been left alone, as Magneto, Mastermind, and Toad, maybe Astra too, they're out for the evening and won't be back till morning. Pietro decides that while the cat's away, they ought to boogie on out of there. Now, Wanda isn't so sure, citing the fact that they both owe Magneto a tremendous debt. Now, by now, Pietro's already got the suitcases packed, and he's running toward the door. Um, and the only thing that can stop him is getting hexed by his own sister. So, uh, a little bit of in-hexed? In-hexed on my show? Mm. Now, Wanda reminds him of that flashback that we saw a little while back. You know the one. The European village, Wanda's about to be strung up as a witch. Magneto swoops in to save her. Pietro reminds her that Magneto's goal is to destroy Homo sapiens. And, I, I mean, I thought his goal was just finding out where the X-Men live. That seems to be what he does every time out. Anyway, Wanda then reminds him, a lot of reminding going on here, uh, that humans, and stop me if you heard this one before, uh, humans fear and hate mutants. And as such, maybe Magneto is right. So we gotta get that on a t-shirt stat. Pietro thinks about how they just need someone to help them. You know, make a good impression, shake that mutant stigma a little bit, and uh, he thinks of all the super homo sapiens that the Marvel Universe has to offer. And in his mind's eye, he sees Spider-Man, Captain America, Giant Man, Iron Man, Daredevil, and Thor. But he just doesn't know where to find them. You know, if only he knew, then maybe he could, uh check in with them and see if they can help him out. At this point, Wanda comes to the realization that, uh, you know what? There are some Marvel heroes whose address is public record, and it's at Kooky Quartet at the Baxter Building. And so, that's who they head off to see. And oh, uh, by the way, the Brotherhood is back on Island M, it would seem here. It's, it's an island of some sort, I'm going to assume it's Island M. From here, we jump over to the Baxter Building, where Johnny and Ben are going about their day. Johnny's on the phone with Dory while reading a comic book, and Benji is reading his fan mail from the Yancey Street Gang. And uh, they accuse him of wearing a big blue diaper, and, uh, I mean, they're not entirely wrong, are they? 
Uh, this causes Ben to stomp around and kind of tear the place up a bit. Johnny hangs up with Doris to attend to his pal and make sure to, you know, this place doesn't fall apart. Just then, a breaking news bulletin begins playing on the television. It's reported that the X-Men, who I feel I must remind you are currently being feared and or hated by Homo sapiens, they've released official photos of the members of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. Quite how they took these photos, I couldn't tell you. And they're just headshots, by the way. As in, just heads, no, not even necks or anything. Well, Mastermind's photo does has, have his like trench coat lapel under his face, but he's the only one. The other ones are just floating heads. So maybe we had a police sketch artist do these, I don't know. Anyway, the reporter urges the public to be on the lookout for the extremely powerful and bent-on-world domination evil mutants. And we probably don't need a roll call, but what the hell, right? The Brotherhood of Evil Mutants includes Magneto, Toad, Mastermind, Quicksilver, and the Scarlet Witch. Johnny suggests that they help out their pals the X-Men by tracking down some evil mutants. And Ben and Johnny then reminisce a bit about the times they've met the X-Men in the past. First, how they fought them when the mutants were carrying out the Puppet Master and Mad Thinker's plan. That was uh, back in Fantastic Four number 28, which we discussed in Essential Episode 9. Then, that time that Johnny and Kid Cool teamed up to save that boat full of swinging teenagers from Captain Barracuda, which happened in Strange Tales number 120, which we discussed in Essential Episode 8. Now, Ben says he's up for the hunt and asks if he ought to go fetch his butterfly net. From here, we shift downstairs to the lobby where two conspicuously trench-coated individuals are trying to secure a meeting with the Fantastic Four. The security guards down there, well, they're not keen on this idea of having the FF get a pop-in and suggest that these two just make an appointment. And so Wanda hexes a nearby emergency fire hose and wraps the rent-a-cops up. And one of them's like, eh, whatever, the Fantastic Four can handle these two. And the other immediately knows that they were just hexed by the Scarlet Witch, which might just stretch my ability to suspend disbelief more than anything else we're going to see today. Seconds later, so Stanley double time, Quicksilver runs into Ben and Johnny's area, which, you know, might not be the best way to go about the whole we come in peace sort of visit, you know, using your mutant power to run in like a blaze. Anyway, Johnny recognizes Pietro as the Brotherhood's resident speedster and immediately flames on. And, you know, likely making quite the mess for damage control to have to deal with. Though, I mean, this is what we're paying them for. Johnny isn't content with just burning up one corner of the room, and so he proceeds to hurl some fireballs in Quicksilver's direction. They all miss, because, you know, Pietro is very fast. Ben then winds up and prepares to punch Pietro as he runs by, but he winds up getting hexed by the witch. And instead of punching Pietro, he punches some nearby machinery, which then topples over on top of Wanda, so I guess that probably could have gone smoother. Pietro rushes over to his fallen sister, prompting the two-in-one gang to realize, hey, you know what? Maybe this Quicksilver isn't all bad. I mean, after all, would a bad guy really turn his back on them to, you know, in a fight to check on his sister? Well, maybe, but for the purposes of this scene, you know, heck no. Well, now Pietro's pissed, right? He's really annoyed, and so he, well, he does what he does. He runs around a lot. Were you expecting him to do anything else? Uh, Johnny resumes fireballing him, and naturally, they all miss. Ben goes to punch Pietro again. Now this time, the speedster grabs Ben's fist and proceeds to spin him around in circles, making the ever-loving, whirly-eyed thing rather dizzy. He then runs tight circles around Johnny, which causes like an air vortex suction thing, driving the torch into bonking his flaming head on the ceiling, thus spreading the fire that damage control is going to have to deal with to an entire other floor. Pietro then tells the fellas that he and his sister came in peace. 
Johnny and Ben ain't buying it, and I mean, considering the way this meeting has gone, I mean, can you blame them? Now, Pietro tries to explain their situation. However, before he can, Johnny has trapped him in a flaming net, like a cage made out of flame. Ben then puts on a very convenient asbestos suit, inside which he is able to walk through Johnny's flames to confront Quicksilver. Ben then winds up again and punches Pietro as hard as he can in the face. The only problem here is the asbestos suit caused old Benji to unwittingly pull his punch, so it doesn't even knock Quicksilver to the ground. Meanwhile, Wanda is awakened by the raging inferno that has overtaken this entire floor of the Baxter building. And so she hexes Ben's asbestos suit, and then she causes a storm to begin, during which a torrential downpour comes whooshing into the building through a now-open window, which it seems perhaps a bit overcomplicated, but what are you going to do? Now, once the dust, flames, and water settles, Pietro runs to his sister and proclaims that maybe Magneto is right. As they're feared and hated by Homo sapiens, they can also never trust them. Basically, this whole thing was a bad idea. And yeah, you know, I agree for many reasons. The Maximoffs then leave the Baxter building, and Ben and Johnny just let them go. Johnny suggests that Reed would have done the same. And well, after another Yancey Street gang mention, we are out of here. Next episode, we're going to uh, introduce one of my very least favorite places in the Marvel Universe. We are going to go back to the flagship X-Men book, and we are going to visit the Savage Land. But we'll worry about that later. (laughs) Right now, let's talk about, well, what little there is to talk about in this Strange Tales outing here with uh, Wanda and Pietro. Yeah, I, I was considering not even including this because... A, I mean, the X-Men are only there for a cameo panel and a flashback, and B, I don't know how I don't know how much we associate Wanda and Pietro with the X-Men, especially nowadays, and C, I just didn't think there'd be a whole lot to say, and indeed, there really isn't. All we really get here that we can chat about is the fact that these two I mean, they're conflicted, right? That's something we've been discussing since since X-Men number four. You know, they don't seem like full-blown villains, and that's been noticed by quite a few people. Uh, not Ben and Johnny. <laughs> I guess they uh, they consider them villains, but they, they don't know them as well as we do, so I guess we can I guess we can excuse that. But what we see here is that Wanda and Pietro, they they're not villains, right? They're in a bad situation. They're caught between a rock and a hard place with this feeling of obligation to Magneto for saving Wanda from being, you know, burned or tied or whatever whatever the hell was going to happen to her in that uh, in that European village back in the long ago. But here is the first time that they're proactively trying to turn over a new leaf. And in that respect, this is a fairly seminal story, right? Um, we know that they will go on to join the Avengers. They're not going to join the X-Men, which I think a lot of uh, letter hacks in the X-Men letters page are going to be a little bit disappointed by. But, you know, plenty are going to be pretty pleased, too, because... That's another thing that's coming up in those letters pages is, you know, the fans really, really like uh, Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver, and they're pretty conflicted as well as to whether or not they should join the X-Men. You know, they people have suggested they join, but people have also suggested that they, they go out on their own. They do their own thing. Maybe they get their own one half of a book, right? You know, we've got all these halvesy stories here uh, back in the mid-60s with the tales of books and uh, and strange tales as well. This little story will be the closest these two will get to getting their own you know, series, right? And it was a perfectly fine outing, though 
And this is most definitely an ex-lapsed problem. You know, the fact that we are covering these in such quick succession and we're spending so much time analyzing stories that maybe don't lend themselves to analysis, right? We're spending a lot of time with these things. So the fact that we have Wanda and Pietro conflicted all the time, it feels like it's draining on us. But again, that might be an ex-lapsed problem. I, I'm almost 100% sure it is because if you were reading these month to month or by month to by month, you need these bits to remind you of who these characters are. And if you don't read the X-Men and you are a Fantastic Four, I don't know if there were completionists back in 1964, 1965, but let's assume there were. And if you're buying everything with a Fantastic Four character in it, then stands to reason that this might be the first time you're meeting Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch. So it works to to give the quick and dirty on who they are, where they're coming from. Um, flesh them out a little bit here. Show that they are, you know, the like the prototypical Shades of Grey character in the uh, in the early Marvel Universe. So with all that said, I think this story worked as well as it's uh, going to work. Now, what's more, we have uh, Johnny and Ben just attacking Pietro and Wanda, right? Of course, they did, you know, force themselves into the building, which is probably not what you want to do. But this is another indictment on the thing we've been talking about, I think, most episodes of late, that these stories, these stories that we're reading here, would not happen if the characters took a second to talk, right? We saw it with the Fantastic Four confrontation, we've seen it with the Avengers confrontation, and now we're seeing it again here, where it's just like, if they took two seconds to talk, well, we wouldn't have a fight scene. But in this, in the case of this story, we wouldn't have had anything, because the entire story is basically a fight scene. Now, this isn't me saying that we shouldn't have these fight scenes because that's kind of the uh, the order of the day for, you know, the uh, the mid-60s. It's kind of the story you're going to get. But as like a value-added thing uh, for this fight in particular, it drove the point home to uh, Pietro and Wanda that maybe Magneto's right, you know? Maybe Magneto is right not to trust these humans, uh, super-powered or otherwise, I mean, it's kind of a tunnel vision way of looking at it because, as as mentioned, Wanda and Pietro were uh, trespassing at the time, which might inspire a more physical uh, response than had they you know, maybe made a phone call or sent a letter. Uh, they're going to send a letter to the Avengers pretty soon, so we'll talk about that when we get there. Uh, and the letter works a whole lot better than just uh, barging in on a, a team at home. Anyway, I think that's probably all I got to say about this story. There, Like I said, there really, really isn't much to it, despite the fact that it is somewhat seminal. Um, we do have Dick Ayers on pencils here. I can't recall if this is the first time we're covering a Dick Ayers penciled book on the show. And, you know, you look at it quick, and, uh, I mean, it's not too different from Kirby's stuff here, which is probably, you know, par for the course for Marvel at the time. They probably want to make sure they have a... Fairly distinct house style. I mean, outside of uh, Ditko, who is kind of kind of out there uh, compared to Kirby, but perfectly solid stuff. worth uh, worth spending five minutes on your Marvel Unlimited app to uh, take in and enjoy. It's uh, as we say here on the show. It's not going to rock your socks, but it's also not going to set them on fire. It's just another uh, another layer of the story for us to follow. So. I enjoyed taking a look at it. I hope you guys did as well. Um, let's hop into the mailbag here. We don't do the letters page on on the you know the off the beaten path books, right? We don't look at the strange tales or the Fantastic Four letters pages because, frankly, we don't have the context, right? Uh, we talk about the X Men ones because we can relate back to stuff we've already discussed here. 
So let's get into our mailbag here. We got one letter from our friend Billy. He's talking about Essential Episodes 11 and 12. He says, hey, Chris, I really enjoyed these two episodes. Speaking on Thor, because this was a Journey into Mystery episode, if you can get your hands on the Essential volumes or reprints at a decent cost, definitely grab them. To me, Spider-Man, Fantastic Four, and Thor were the top three books at Marvel in the early to mid-Silver Age by far. Kirby's imagination was on full display on Thor, and... Yeah, you know, I've I've flipped through, and, and even on the uh, Unlimited app here, uh, there's, there's a lot of, like... I, I've mentioned that I'm not a huge Kirby fan. You know, I could kind of take or leave him. I don't have a strong opinion on his art. It's I can appreciate it for um, how important it is. Uh, and there are times I even like it, but uh, there there are also times where it's just like, okay, this is very workmanlike, you know, and, and of course it was workmanlike. Kirby had a lot on his plate, so I definitely can appreciate and respect that. But it wasn't often that I was dazzled by his work, you know. It's a rarity where you can, where, where I can look at a Kirby page and be like, wow, you know, that's wild stuff. And you're right, in Thor, um, Kirby might have shined brightest on Thor. Uh, there's just some amazing stuff there. The entire concept still doesn't speak to me. Um, I mean, I do have Unlimited, so it, there's no reason why I can't, you know, dip in and experience some seminal Thor. If, if anybody out there, Billy, you, yourself included, if you have any Thor stories that you think I gotta read, you know, if you were to point to this story is what will get you into Thor, you know, send it my way. You know, let me know where, where to go, and I will, uh, I'll definitely check it out. Uh, I really have no excuse not to, right? Um... Now, uh, Billy continues. The character of Eunice the Untouchable is a far cry from Elliot Ness and the boys, but some of the shenanigans made me laugh a lot, so consider me entertained by the simplistic storytelling. And yeah, we talked about Eunice the Untouchable in uh, X-Men number 8, and that was a weird episode because there was this, like, odd odd thing happened in the middle of it that uh, I I don't even really remember what it was so much. Um, I just saw that my recording was very strange, and a few people reached out to ask about it. They were confused by something that happened in it, and I don't know what they're talking about. I have no idea. But for the Eunice bits here, yeah, Eunice is, uh, I mean, he's not wildly interesting, but I do like the way they dealt with him here. It was a very smart, it was like a work smarter, not harder sort of way, but in a... Very bizarre Silver Age uh, context where, like, Beast, (laughs) as we talked about during that episode, Beast creates this machine that, by all rights, should change everything. You know, this thing should be on Krakoa somewhere in in the current year books because... He can amplify a mutant's power and he can turn off a mutant's power with this, with this machine. Um, amazing. The fact that we don't ever see this thing again, at least as far as I can remember. I mean, they're going to be attacked by Magneto at least another 7,000 times. And Beast doesn't think to, like, hit him with the, uh, with the ray? You know, even if he just amps up Magneto's power, Magneto will crush himself, you know, under metal. <laughs> he'll, he won't be able to control it. Or if he turns it down, he'll be, you know, no threat at all. But we don't see it again, at least as far as I know. I could be wrong. I could very well be wrong that Beast's mutant device might show up sometime down the line. I don't know. But it's just so strange to me that um, outside of the Brotherhood, right, all the X-Men outings that don't have to do with Magneto end with the bad guy just walking away. You know, it's like we see a shot of their back being like, oh, I'm never going to deal with this crap again. Yeah, we... The Vanisher, he was mind-wiped. 
you know, the blob was mind wiped and then he was just dejected. And he's like, screw the mutants, I'm done. Here, Eunice is you know, similar. He's like, uh, you know, I, I'll just go back to being a wrestler. And he slumps shoulderly, walks away. It's almost a trope now with these X-Men stories where they all end with someone walking away. And you can hear the sad music, right? Is it the... Uh, I never watched the Incredible Hulk TV show, but I, I know there's like a meme, you know, where it's like the sad Hulk music plays when someone walks away. And then the X-Men stand around and uh, congratulate themselves. It's... It's as you mentioned. It's simplistic storytelling, but it works, right? It works. It's silly. It's funny. It's. I, I almost wish we had a few more pages of Eunice like trying to eat a steak. You know, <laughs> we saw the steak fly away from him, but I would love for him to like just just chase a steak like he's you know Pac-Man gobbling up a, a power pellet. You know, just trying to trying to chase this thing down. It. I think it would have been funny. Anyway, Billy wraps up with, as always, thanks for chugging along with this project. Well, thank you so much for sticking with this project. Um, these projects are niche, which makes it incredibly difficult to not only find, but to maintain a, an audience and a listenership. So it really does mean so much to me that you're, you're out there and everybody's out there who is out there. So thank you so, so much. Um, now, if anybody else would like to write in and chat about the Silver Age X-Men or anything in general, you can do so. You can find me several different ways. On Twitter, I'm at Ace Comics. Instagram, 90s X-Men. You can call into the X-Labs hotline at 623-396-JERK. For blog posts and show notes, you can head over to chrisisoninfiniteearths.com, where uh, we're just shy of 2,000 days of daily content, which... It's kind of mind-blowing, because it feels like just yesterday I was doing Action Comics 1000 for the 1,000th uh, installment. It's Time is a uh, crazy, crazy thing, isn't it? But yes, just shy of 2,000 days in a row of comics content over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. Thank you to everybody who still pops in there from time to time, which uh, ain't many people, but uh, I appreciate everybody who does. You can join us on Facebook. We're at 90s X-Men. That's our little group. We have fun X-related conversations in there each and every day, and I would love to see you guys there. Finally, for all your Chris and Reggie comics commentary needs, you can head over to chrisandreggie.podbean.com, available everywhere the internet aggregates noise. And if while you're there, you like what you hear, or at least appreciate the effort that goes into it each and every day, just shy, uh, just a couple months shy of an entire year, of daily podcasts, which, uh, don't know why that's important to me, but, uh, when life refuses to give you milestones, you, you're left to make them yourself, so there you go. Anyway, if while you're there, or you appreciate the effort behind it, I would love for you to spread the word, share the show, maybe tell a friend or two, and ask them to do the same, if, uh, if they're into comics, if they're into X-Men, if they just want to hear some uh, idiot from Brooklyn babble. Uh, maybe that's a, a sleep aid for some people. I'll take any listen I can get. If, you're, if you just want to go to sleep, that's fine. I won't take it personally. But I think that's all we got for today. This episode went far longer than I thought it would. We broke 20 minutes. I didn't think we'd break 10. <laughs> How about that? That said, I would like to thank you all so, so much for giving me these 20-odd minutes today. I really, really appreciate it. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.
Hey, how's it going everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 15 of the Essential X Lapsed, an episode that'll see us taken to, well, one of my very least favorite places in the Marvel Universe. Um, folks who listen to original recipe X Lapsed will know that there's a place that uh, the X-Men go to an awful lot these days that I really, really don't like. The good news is we're not going there. The bad news is we're going to the place that I hate just a little bit less than that place. And uh, it is the Savage Land. Let's hop right in. This is X-Men number 10, March 1965, cover date. The story's called The Coming of... dot 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 Kazar, or Kazar. I, I will probably pronounce it both ways, and both are probably wrong. Written and edited by Stan Lee, pencils Jack Kirby, inks Chick Stone, letters S. Rosen, colors somebody. Uh, cover price, 12 cents American. And so, as mentioned, we are in the Savage Land. And as is customary, we're going to skip the silly Silver Age spoilery splash page and just hop into our Titanic tale. Now, our story officially opens with... Oh, you'll probably never... Ever. Ever. Guess. Well, yeah, if you're listening this long, you probably will. Uh, The X-Men are in the danger room, and they are danger rooming. They are doing so under the watchful eye of Professor S. Um, Now, Xavier is back in the house, but I guess he doesn't concern himself with the post-grad studies. Now, we see Marvel Girl taking apart a rifle with her telekinesis, while Kid Cool tells her that she'll never be able to put it back together again. Now, when she proves him wrong, he gives her a sarcastic little clap. Or, I mean, maybe it's genuine. It's it's hard to tell. Uh, he does say that she is terrific, so eh, take that for what you will. Now, Cyclops congratulates her on a job well done, while thinking to himself that, uh, well, he's got the total hot pants for her. Now, she thinks the same, but theirs is a love that cannot be, for reasons that uh, uh, they're a mystery to me. Anyway... The gang realizes that Warren didn't attend this training session, and so they literally bolt to his bedroom to find out why. I mean, they don't have this kind of sense of urgency when chasing down the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, but Warren doesn't show up and they are just like, pew, they're in there, it's crazy. So they get to Warren's room where he's watching some television. I I wonder if Warren is the only student with a TV in his room, maybe, I don't know. Now, Scott goes to read him the riot act until Warren shushes him because they're about to see something that might affect the X-Men. Now, what they see on the television is an expedition on Antarctica where one of these researchers have gone missing. Now, as they're watching, he's returned. He's this, uh, this missing researcher is returned to his team by a strange man wearing only a loincloth and also his pet saber-toothed tiger. Now, the research, naturally, they, they go to attack. And uh, this springs the tiger into action, and the news claims that there were no fatalities, but I ain't buying it. Now, Cyclops comments how saber-toothed tigers have been extinct forever, so how can this possibly be? Also, there's a wild man. What's his deal? Huh. Now, Hank, summoning all the logistical power of Magneto, automatically assumes that this wild man must be a mutant. Man, I feel like I'm back talking about Millennium over at DC, where everybody was a manhunter. This book, anybody you see, is automatically assumed to be a mutant. From both sides, good and evil. It's crazy. Minutes later, and I still love how all the uh, time transitions are just like minutes later. It's it's every single time almost. Um, Now, minutes later, the X-Men arrive in Xavier's study to talk about this weird event. The professor tells the teens that this wild man is not a mutant. But... 
you know what? If the X-Men want to check into this, they have his blessing. And so the four underlings all run off to pack their things. Now Iceman, since he is a 16-year-old scamp, he trips Jean up with an ice slide, to which she refers to him as a juvenile Jerry Lewis, which might be a little redundant. I don't know. Meanwhile, Scott and Charles chat a bit, with our field leader getting a little bit of a uh, refresher on Cerebro. Now, Xavier shows him how there is currently no pinging where they're going, meaning there are no mutants in the Antarctic. However, Xavier warns that uh, this doesn't mean there isn't any other kind of threat there. Now, Cyclops realizes here that Chuck ain't going to be accompanying them, and he promises not to disappoint him. Days later, the X-Men arrive in Antarctica. They're in a Humvee-looking thing following a map to the location of that research team event. Once there, they locate a crevasse. They recognize it as the one that the wild man jumped into during the news report. The kids look deep into this hole, and they realize that they can't even see a bottom. And so Cyclops uh, optic blasts straight down into it, which, I don't know, doesn't seem all that logical. But whatever the case, it causes a geyser of snow to shoot up, which gives the X-Men a way to traverse down the crevasse. And, uh... I can't explain it. We're just going to allow it. Um, Now, after several hours of walking, or what at least feels like it, the X-Men arrive in a whole new undiscovered world. Now, of course, they're still in the Antarctic, but for some reason, it's warm and sunny here. Well, the sky is pink, so we might assume it's sunny, or or maybe it's crisis. Who knows? Uh, Warren takes flight, and he discovers a whole bunch of giant bones. It's an animal burial ground like he'd never seen before, which begs the question, how many animal burial grounds has he seen before? Then, a pterodactyl swoops over and nearly bites him in two. Cyclops blasts the dino, giving Angel enough room to escape. The X-Men then take a tour of this weird, savage place, and are in shock of all the thought-to-be-extinct wildlife just running around all over the place. But then, they're attacked by some dino-riding warriors and they lob gas bombs in the X-Men's direction, KOing all but the Beast. Now, Beast always seems to be the one who uh, survives the sleep bombs, isn't he? Uh, Well, he dropkicks one of the warriors, but has to draw back to avoid being impaled by a whole bunch of arrows. Then, our wild friend runs up, yelling like Tarzan. This prompts the warriors to flee, but first, they snag the sleeping Jean Grey and take her back with them. Now, the wild man Sabretooth Tiger gives chase, but the baddies escape through the swamp, and I guess Zabu can't swim. Our new friend introduces himself as Kazar, or Kazar, whatever. Uh, Nobody seems all that concerned that Jean's been kidnapped just yet. Beast puts his hand on Kazar's shoulder and thanks him for the save. Kazar, Kazar, does not like being touched, and what's more, his pet cat Zabu doesn't like Kazar, Kazar being touched either. And so the big cat lunges. Now, Iceman freezes the kitty in a block of ice, which Kazar Kazar shatters with a big stone. Cyclops blasts the stone out of Kazar Kazar's hands, and from there, we're in a full-blown brouhaha. Until more bad guys show up. Now, this is like the Marvel hero mix-up method on steroids here. This entire thing is being played out like in three panels, like the meat, the misunderstanding, the fight, and making peace. Real, real quick here. Usually, we can get like half an issue out of this. Here we get half a page. What are you going to do? Kazar, Kazar, attacks the new baddie, who is Magor Magor the Killer. Okay. He's the last of the man-ape tribe. He ultimately winds up chasing him off by repeatedly yelling that he is the Lord of the Jungle. And uh, so I'm going to try that the next time I'm in any sort of uncomfortable situation. And uh, I suggest you all do the same so we can compare notes later on. 
Cyclops finally remembers that there used to be a girl on their team, and then he asks Kazar Kazar if he might help track her down. Kazar Kazar reveals that she's been taken by the Swamp Men, and he proclaims that he will take the X-Men to them. Angel decides to fly off on his own to get a better look at the place, and, uh, well, he winds up getting caught in a net. I mean, isn't dodging nets Warren's only danger room exercise? You'd think he'd be better at this, even though I think the last time we saw him in the danger room, he did fly right into a net, so fair play, Stan. Uh, Whatever the case, this net belongs to the Swamp Men, and so they deposit our winged wonder right next to our marvelous girl. It's revealed that these two are going to be used in a sacrificial rite. And so they are led to the top of a nearby pyramid, which houses a T-Rex under a strange mechanical floorboard gimmick. Like, like the kind of technology that the Savage Land probably should not have. Um, so Warren's there and he's all, Hey Gene, you know those TK powers you got? Maybe you might want to use them to untie us right about now? Maybe? Hmm, maybe? Uh, back with the boys. Bobby ice slides our heroes alongside Kazar Kazar as they approach the Swamp Men's fort. Once there, Hank breaks away to get a look on his own. At this point, Zabu roars, which gives away their location, and so the Swamp Men proceed to attack. Back to the pyramid. Gene is TK-tossing some stones in the T-Rex's direction. Warren suggests that maybe she try TKing the T-Rex itself. And so she does, tripping the terrible lizard onto its side. At this point, Jean's able to untie she and Warren, and they go to fly off. Unfortunately, Warren's far too weak from the ordeal, and he is easily caught by the ankles by the Swamp Men. Meanwhile, the barefoot beast of the barefoot beats is walking up the wall of the fort. Once at the top, he starts fighting the Swampies. Down below, Cyclops uses his optic blast to bust through a wall of the fort, and this reveals a booby trap, a blade on a mace which swoops through the hole, nearly just clobbering him. Kazar Kazar is able to push Scott out of the path of this mace, but just barely. He then screams like Tarzan again, which prompts several dozen woolly mammoths to charge the fort. I wonder why he didn't just lead with that. From here, a fight is on. And it's kind of funny, Stan can't even explain what Kirby draws here. The caption that Stan writes reads as follows. No mere words of ours can do justice to the fury of Kazar Kazar's attack. So we'll attempt no such written description. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, the Marvel method at work. Anyway, the good guys win. Zabu chases the Swamp Men from their fort, and the X-Men reunite. We close out, and this is another really funny scene here. Cyclops refers to Kazar Kazar as a true friend. Kazar Kazar responds by telling the X-Men to leave and never, ever come back. And I'm not joking. It's like Cyclops is there extending his hand to shake it. Hey, it's, oh boy, it's so great to have a true friend in Kazar, Kazar. And he's just like, no, you go now, don't come back. And so the X-Men leave through the tunnel that brought them, and Kazar, Kazar barricades the passage as soon as they're gone. And that is where we leave it. Next episode, it will be our final visit, for a little while anyway, with the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. And uh, boy, not an issue too soon, huh? They've been kind of monopolizing this book for a little too long now, so it'll be nice to... Let's take them off the board for a minute, but uh, that's a discussion for next time. Uh, for now, we're not even done with this book. We've got the letters page to get to, the letters page and the, the special announcement section and the mighty Marvel checklist. Oh, boy. Let's get right into it. We're going to start with a letter from Barbara in Alabama. Now, she loves the X-Men. She loves Marvel. What's more, she is madly 
madly, passionately in love with Professor X. Uh, she says that, she, that he is, quote, just her type. She would like to know more about the X-Men's origins, um, which, I, I mean, they were born with their powers, right? I, I don't know. Uh, Stan promises that, uh, well, he'll tell some stories from X-Past, even some where the professor had hair. So hmm, I, I hope that doesn't uh, affect how much she loves him, but... Uh, I guess we're just going to have to wait and see And uh, see if Barbara writes back Next we got Brian in Massachusetts He uh, will not waste time Inflating Stan Lee's ego By telling him how much he loves the books Wow, what a dick um, He's got some questions and he's got some comments First, how do you pronounce Eunice, or Unis, maybe Hmm uh, He wants Marvel Girl's head sock to have more blue in it He doesn't like it being so dark uh, He'd like to see her hairstyle change back To what it was in the first issue he, like everybody else, wants Iceman's friggin' booties back. Uh, he would like to keep Pietro and Wanda in the Brotherhood, but when they do turn good, he wants to see them go off on their own and not join the X-Men. And he would like Eunice, Blob, and the Vanisher to take their places in the Brotherhood. He'd like Scott to lead the X-Men two-thirds of the time. Okay. Uh, he would like Marvel announcements to be standard across the board. To which I gotta ask, why? I mean, do you really want to read the same news every week for a month or two? That seems like... They're giving you more content here. They're giving you more new. Just take it and like it, man. I mean, uh, let's jump ahead to, like, the 1980s books, right? Where we'd get dozens upon dozens of books every single month. And if you were a completionist, or if maybe maybe it was Secret Wars, Secret Wars 2, you were collecting all the tie-ins, every single bullpen bulletin's page was the same. All the announcement pages were the same, and that that gets old quick. So if they're giving you different information every week, then just just enjoy it and appreciate it. Because boy, the you know the pendulum swings the other way. It's uh, it gets kind of dull. Now back to Brian. He would like Marvel to push back their releases until the end of the month. Okay. Uh, he points out in the end of X Men number eight that Angel has no wings, and he hopes that this gets him a quote super boner no prize. What now? Hmm. Well, I tell you what. I did the work here. I checked the Essential Collection and Marvel Unlimited, and Angel has his wings in this panel. Maybe they were added later, right? That is a possibility. But as far as I can tell, he's, he's got the wings, unless I'm looking at the wrong panel, which is, I suppose, a possibility. I flipped through, though. What are you going to do? Now, uh, Stan cops to the boner, but, I mean, is that all it takes to get a no prize? Just pointing out a mistake? I, I thought you had to point out a mistake and then make it work within the context of the story, right? It's like, well, he didn't have his wings because of this. And it's like, okay, well, that makes sense. Here's your no prize. Just saying, hey, you made a mistake, or, hey, you know, uh, his shoes were red in this panel instead of black. I, I, I don't know. Uh, Stan also says that the U in Eunice is long, so now we know how to say it, even though we've been saying it that way uh, since Jump Street. Now we just need someone to write in and ask how to say Kazar, Kazar. And uh, maybe even Dakin Dakin, who knows um, Next up, John in Vermont Now he hated, hated comic books before Fantastic Four number 1 hit And he's about to start college and he considers comics to be great reading material Cool, me too uh, Philip in New Jersey He asks why Bobby doesn't slip when he walks You know, especially since he doesn't have his booties anymore Now, Stan can't answer but he puts it out there that a Marvel marcher can get themselves a no prize if they can explain it to him. So, uh, get to brainstorming, I guess. Norman in Ohio. 
He says that the Marvel style lacks quality. Ooh, we got a uh, we got a contentious little uh, letter here. He thinks Kirby isn't an artist, just a businessman. Boy, he says Kirby's work is unpleasing to <clears throat> the discerning comic book fan. <laughs> In 1964, they were discerning comic book fans. Uh, he would prefer to see Don Heck and Dick Ayers in the pencil seat. And, uh, well, be careful what you wish for. Uh, Stan accuses Norman of being related to Don and or Dick. And he says that he and Jack still love him, but Jack's off somewhere grumbling. Which, I mean, I'm, I'm there with you. Kirby isn't, you know, my favorite. Kirby is certainly not my style. But let's let's look at facts here. Dude was drawing like 100 pages a month at this point. Let's, let's cut him a little bit of slack here, right? And yeah, he, you're damn right he's a businessman. Everybody in comics was a businessman. Get over it. Uh, next up, Jack in Washington. He's got questions. He's got questions about Marvel Girl's hair. This is very, very important stuff here. He also asks if uh, they got her name as a play on the, quote, Marvel Age of Comics. And Stan replies that they sure didn't get it from Disney, which I guess that's aged oddly. Uh, Now, Stan blames Jean's hair on a woman's fickleness because they change up their looks and whatnot all the time, so... It's, uh, it's not Jack Kirby's fault. It's not uh, Dick Ayer's fault. It's, uh, it's Jean's own fault. She's just so fickle. Oh, boy. Mike in Massachusetts. He loved X-Men number eight. He says Chick Stone is finally starting to get it. He also loves the letters page, and I agree. I am a big fan of these letters pages. They are a lot of fun. He also loves the Merry Marvel Marching Society. And uh, he, I, I'm thinking he might just be like a Marvel-programmed AI bot because he just loves everything, and he's plugging everything. I, I just can't tell. Next up, Judith in Florida. Now, she starts by saying she's a psychology student, which, as a fellow who holds a, uh, a BS in psychology myself, I do know that feeling where uh, <laughs> you always have to preface with that. Um, now, as a psychology student... She feels as though the world telekinesis is obsolete. I mean, it's, it's also fictional, but who's, who's, keeping, who's keeping track here? Uh, she says that the term ought to be psychokinetic. Who cares? Uh, Stan certainly doesn't care. He just mocks her for thinking too hard and trying to point out errors in Marvel science. And, I mean, Stan, God bless him, he's got a point. I wonder what's next for uh, for Judith here. Maybe she'll write in complaining about the physical impossibility of Namor's little ankle wings. You know, come on. Uh, Jerry in New York. Now, he asks if the Stan Lee who wrote Monsters to Laugh With is the Stan Lee. And we get the perfect Stan answer here. Stan says, if you liked it, it was. But if you didn't, it was some other guy named Stan Lee. So perfect, perfect Stan Lee answer. Now, in case you're wondering, Monsters to Laugh With was a black-and-white magazine that Marvel put out in the mid-60s, which ran for seven issues. Now, it's a comedy magazine having to do with monsters, as if the name didn't give it away completely. And the covers would feature movie stills with a quote-unquote funny caption or voice balloon. Now, the first issue didn't sell so well, and so Martin Goodman added Stan Lee's name to the cover as a selling point. Now, after three issues, the title changed from Monsters to Laugh With to Monsters Unlimited, and it would only go four more issues. Now, that might be due to sales lagging, or maybe Stan having to write every single other thing Marvel was putting out. Maybe he just didn't have the time for it. Who knows? Now, Marvel would revisit this concept again in 1973 with their black-and-white Monster Madness magazine, which uh, 
also had Stan's name on the cover. It was by Sinister Stan Lee. That's our letters page. Let's hop into the special announcements section here. Uh, Now, Stan comments that the X-Men and Daredevil are still bi-monthly. Now, he claims that the sort of stories that they tell in those two mags take longer than the others. Yeah, sure. Uh, But Marvel is certainly open to trying to make the monthly somewhere down the line. He also pleads with readers to keep their letters short, which, wow. Um, I mean, I'll take any letters. Send it by carrier pigeon, scrolled in crayon, uh, whatever. I, I just want the engagement. So uh, long, short, thin, tall, big, wide, I don't care. Send me whatever letters you've got. If you're writing a letter to Stan Lee right now and you think it might be too long, just send it to me instead. It'll be just fine. I will take it and I will love it. Uh, next, the mighty Marvel Checklist. Let's get into this month's books. Fantastic Four number 37 is Behold, a Distant Star. Amazing Spider-Man number 23 features Spidey versus the Green Goblin. Avengers number 14 has the Avengers fight something. <laughs> Thor 114 has Thor fighting someone. Uh, Strange Tales number 131 plugs Bob Powell's new take on the Human Torch and Thing. And uh, also Doctor Strange is on the run. Tales of Suspense number 64 introduces the Black Widow, and Hawkeye is back as well. In the other story there, Cap and Bucky fight some menaces from the past. Tales to Astonish number 66 has Giant Man versus Madame Macabre, and Hulk fights the commies. Sergeant Fury number 16 features the Howlers in North Africa. So, that's the issue in some, and, uh, well, what did we think about this story here? Uh, it's, it's weird to look back on this, because... Had we been, you know, in late 1964, early 1965, and we see the X-Men go to the Savage Land, we might feel like that's yeah, kind of a departure, right? It's kind of a uh, a stretch from what they usually do. It's usually more, yeah, we're city-based, right? We're in New York. We're dealing with evil mutants. It's kind of become the routine here. And here we go to some prehistoric pocket of Antarctica. It feels very, very strange. And, of course, in 2021... With all the hindsight in the world, uh, we probably associate the Savage Land with the X-Men probably more than, you know, any other Marvel franchise. The Savage Land and the X-Men just kind of go together. We've, you know, I mean, in the current year stuff, we've got Krakoan plants growing. You know, they got a farm on the Savage Land, right? But I do wonder how fans uh, received this back in the long ago here, and I'm definitely looking forward to reading some of the uh, the letters that come in about X-Men number 10, just, just to see... Just to see what the, uh, what did they call it? The discerning comic book readers of uh, 1964 and 1965 thought about the X-Men almost being eaten by dinosaurs. I think that's, uh, it's just silly enough to work, right? As for the story itself, it's it's pretty inoffensive, right? It's not like, uh, usually when you think about Savage Land stories, or at least when I think of Savage Land stories, I think, like, they're going to last forever. But as a one-and-done, you know, I mean... Eh, there's far worse out there, right? This wasn't bad at all. Anytime I think about the Savage Land, um, I always think about talking about the X-Men animated series with my wife because the only two stories from that entire show that she can remember is the fact that uh, it was the Phoenix thing that she thought went on forever, and it kind of did. And they were fighting dinosaurs. (laughs) And she's like, they they were always in that dinosaur land, and... uh, it's been so long since I've watched any of that stuff, but I also can recall, like, when I did see it, it's like, wow, we're spending a lot of time in, with, a, what was it, like, Amphibious and uh, Magneto's uh, weirdo crew of mutates or whatever. It felt like they were there forever. So um, that's what I always think about when uh, when the Savage Lane comes up is, 
boy, they spent a lot of uh, cartoon episodes there. And again, I, I could totally be misremembering that. It's been, boy, it's been since they first aired. <laughs> I've watched them again. It's one of those things where it's like I'm afraid to even dip my toe into that because... I mean, I, I was I didn't know a whole lot about X-Men continuity then, but any time I see them kind of contradict something that happened or get something wrong, it would bug me even back then when I had very little context, very little historical knowledge, and I couldn't imagine doing that now when, you know, 30-odd years later or whatever it is, it's I'd probably, you know, bash my head into a wall repeatedly before uh, one episode ended. So probably best not to do that. But back to this story. Back to this story here. Um... It was okay, but it feels like uh, Stan was really grasping for straws here. This is a story that could have been told with any team. I mean, we could have had the Avengers, you know, get a get an alert from, uh, or just watch that uh, television show where the researcher was uh, rescued by the loincloth man. It could have been the Fantastic Four. It could have been anything. You know, this really didn't speak X-Men other than the fact that Beast mistakenly thought that Kazar Kazar was a mutant. That's the only thing that really made it. X-specific, but again, not terrible. Um, terrible, we're, res- we're reserving for next episode. That's <laughs> going to be a little bit, uh, a little bit of a slog, but we'll worry about that next time. But I think that's all I have to say about the issue. But before we get out of here, how about we hop into our own mailbag? Here we got a couple of letters. We're going to start with one from our friend Jesse talking about episode number twelve. Now he says, on the brink of what is hopefully a return to the current X-Men books, I wanted to write to express my thanks for the old ones that we're revisiting. And uh, in the words of Chris Hansen, that's not up to me. Um, it's all up to uh, the, uh, the the postal service or FedEx or whoever is uh, controlling the whereabouts of my DCBS package. And it is, it is FedEx. It is definitely FedEx. And... Uh, I think it shipped over a week ago, and it's still like somewhere in Texas right now. So your guess is as good as mine. I'm, you know, I'm having a good time with these essentials, but uh, I do want to get us caught up on the uh, current year stuff because, from what I hear, a lot of stuff happened. Uh, I mean, I don't want to spoil it for anybody, but uh, I hear Magneto might have killed Bernard the Poet <clears throat> or somebody. Um, anyway, back to Jesse's letter. I've been reading the original X-Men, and it's such a relief and a motivation to keep reading when I know others are doing so with me. I'm glad that we're diving outside of the lead title to other appearances. It's making things richer, and it feels like they've been in-universe longer than they have been. The letters pages are fun to revisit as well. It seems like the fanboys love the Pretenders more than the X-Men. Wanda and Pietro, not the band Pretenders. Uh, Do you think mutants call Franklin a pretender as well, or if it's just Wanda because they hold a grudge for something that's now fixable? I almost have a feeling that Franklin may actually still be a mutant and there is shenanigans going on. We will see. Well, I'll start by thanking you for following along with uh, these essentials here. And yes, I agree. It's uh, definitely a motivation knowing that other people are doing it as well. Because, I mean, these stories are... (laughs) They are what they are, right? Uh, Sometimes they are inoffensive. Sometimes they're... Pretty, like a brutal slog, right? Um, We've talked about, I think it was X-Men number four. Yeah, it was X-Men number four that introduced the Brotherhood, and that one just felt like it was endless. Uh, Same with the Fantastic Four issue. The Fantastic Four uh, 28, it was just like, oh boy, can this be over? (laughs) It just kept going and kept going. So it is certainly a motivation, uh, knowing that there are others out there doing the same thing, and... uh, and being here to chat about it makes it all that much better here. I know that there are 
at least a few people out there who are reading along with the program. So that is that is really, really cool to know. And I'm glad you're enjoying the uh, the outside the main title visits that were taken here, too, because that was something I considered at the start. And I was like, I don't know how many people are going to want to like sit through a discussion of an issue of Thor, right? Because I don't have much context for the character. I don't have much, much appreciation for the character either, but... I really wanted to make this... I mean, this this show was called The Essential X-Lapsed as a play on the essential volumes that Marvel put out around the turn of the century. But at the same time, the word essential, I mean, it has some connotations to it, right? It's This is everything, right? We want to be... This is the essential look at the Silver Age X-Men. So I thought it would be best to include as many appearances as possible, as, as many notable appearances as possible. Um... I'm still kind of hemming and hawing over doing Fantastic Four Annual Number 3, which is the wedding of a Reed and Sue. I was initially just going to skip it and just mention it. Like, oh yeah, the X-Men appeared here, but, uh, you know, I think that might be an important issue to cover. Despite the fact that the X-Men are not the focus of it, they are there, and this is the first time we're going to see them in the same book with characters like Spider-Man and Daredevil and Doctor Strange, so... I feel like it might be seminal enough to uh, cover here. And also, it's just such a huge touchstone for the early Marvel Universe, right? This is the book that told everyone in no uncertain terms that these characters all existed in the same in the same space. You know, we see them in the church. All, all the people are together. Every, all the heroes are there, except for, like, I think Hulk and... Uh, Maybe Namor ain't there, but uh, I mean everybody else is there, and it's uh, it's really really cool to see. So we're probably going to be covering that one. I think it's going to be episode twenty. As for the letters pages, I, I I agree they are such a hoot. They are a lot of fun to, uh, to take a look at here. They're almost <laughs> I mean sometimes they they are more fun than the story itself. Uh, it's just really cool to be able to take the temperature. Of the fandom back then It's it's something we don't get to do very often Because these letters pages Aren't reprinted anywhere right? They, these are not things that you're going to see often And so I'm so happy To have the opportunity to share them I mean that's kind of the uh, That's kind of the fake ass comics historian in me You know sharing things that aren't shared often And most people Don't care But when you find someone who does It's very very special I feel like with this show, we have a lot of kindred spirits here who can appreciate these uh, less glamorous, less gl- less glitzy sort of uh, bits of comics history and just appreciate them for what they truly are. And, uh, I mean, this is cultural history. This is the history of people and how they received something when they received it, rather than us just looking back at these comics today being like, wow, can we be done with Magneto? Oh, boy, this is a slog. It's... Folks who are reading this who have nothing to compare it to, you know, they're not going to be like, this wasn't as good as Claremont. (laughs) There was no Claremont at the time. It's just fun. It's just really, really fun, and I'm so happy that I have the opportunity to share them. Now, for the pretenders, the letters pages, they love, they love them some Pietro and Wanda. They love them almost as much, or probably more, than the X-Men in a lot of uh, occasions here. It's very, very weird here. As far as Franklin's concerned, um, I don't think we're done with him just yet. I really don't think we're done with him just yet. I think we will... I think they're going to flip-flop on him a few more times. Um, And actually, I mean, I have this odd, odd suspicion that uh, they might be flip-flopping the pretenders themselves. I I don't have any basis for that uh, sensation, (laughs) but uh, 
I don't know. I have a feeling that that might be coming down the pike at some point. Jesse continues, The writing on the original books are still long-winded, but with a good night's rest ahead of time, it's manageable. And I tell you what, I usually read these right before bed. And, boy, I could read a current yearbook in five, ten minutes, and then I'm still kind of awake. You know, I can pop my headphones in, I can watch some videos, I could, uh, you know, watch something on TV for a little bit before I pass out. But these, oh boy, um, (laughs) they take a long time to read for sure. And when I'm done with them, I am just zonked. Uh, Head hits the pillow and I am done. (laughs) Now Jesse continues... In episode 12, I think it was, you had mentioned how the public had just flipped on the X-Men, and now the X-Men are hated and feared. I'm going to imagine that they, or the Brotherhood, did something in Journey into Mystery number 109 that turned the feet-loving public against Homo Superior. Yeah, I mean, I really don't know. It was so bizarre how, I mean, the worm turned just so quickly. Uh, You know, Beast goes from saving a kid to a very happy but negligent parent to suddenly everybody hates them. It was very, very strange to me. And, I mean, I I know what Stan's going for here. He's trying to differentiate the X-Men from the, you know, rest of the pantheon here, but there's a lack of consistency here, too, right? Um, I mean, in Journey into Mystery 109, the X-Men have statues in the Hall of Heroes. They're not universally feared and hated. They're just kind of feared. It's very strange. Uh, It feels like they... They're reluctant to stick the landing. Maybe they don't realize what the landing is going to be just yet. I think that books with Marvel's Merry Mutants nemeses should be involved in this reading, and if an X-Men's shadow or hand shows up, even the better. And that's another reference to Journey into Mystery 109, where Thor fights Magneto, and uh, the only thing we see of the X-Men are their shadows and Beast's hairy knuckles. So uh, I, I will definitely be including um, as many Magneto appearances as possible. And again, as I've mentioned in almost every episode of late, if... If there's something coming up that you guys know about that I might not be aware of, please, please let me know, and I can make sure to get it on the docket for us. Jesse continues, You're doing a great job, Chris, and I really appreciate the community that you've brought together. I've never had many, if any, friends I could talk comics with, and with you in the Facebook group, it's like being in an old AOL chat room again. And that is probably the greatest compliment <laughs> that this show can get, because that's the kind of feeling I was hoping to evoke, you know? I did the AOL thing when I was a teenager, I did the Usenet thing, and you had this odd feeling of community that, you know, the world was a lot bigger back then. You know, the world is very small, relatively speaking, now, where at any given point in time you could reach into your pocket and say something to the world. You know, back then you you couldn't do that. You had to wait for the the blips and bloops of your (laughs) dial-up, and uh, it was a destination. You know, I think that's what I'm trying to get at here. Going to an AOL message board for Marvel Comics or X-Men Comics was a destination. Hopping onto Usenet BBSs to the Rax MX MISC, whatever the hell it was, that was a destination. You were going there with a purpose. It wasn't just a... It was a less passive thing than um, just you know scrolling through Twitter or through Instagram or something like that. It's, it's that old feeling that I really, really miss. And... Um, I can't lie. Every time I open up Facebook and I see that there's some messages in that uh, in that group, the Xlabs group, it uh, it brings a smile to my face. I, I even even if it has nothing to do with anything I wrote or produced, if it's just people talking about comics or talking to each other, it's it's wonderful. It really does take me back, and the community that we have here is just is just wonderful, and I appreciate 
every single person and uh and hope if uh, if you're listening to this and you're not part of that group that maybe you decide to uh, dip your toe in see if you like it uh jesse continues it's not exactly x-men but i was all i was cringing reading thor's human form's name as don i've always heard and said donald and i need to say he's a crap doctor in Journey into Mystery 109, Thor fights Magneto, heads to his office, spends ten minutes there lecturing a kid on how to throw a football, and then says, eh, that's my last patient for the day, Jane. <laughs> it was his only patient of the day. Stan did not know how to time things, did he? And no, no, uh, Stan, Stan struggled with that a little bit, as evidenced by how everything is minutes later. I mean, we, we flew across the country minutes later in their jet. It's like, huh? <laughs> How did we get? How did we get from New York to Florida? Come on, that's uh, that's not minutes, pal. Uh, Jesse wraps up with, "Well, until the world's most powerful telepath and an omega-level mutant can outbrain power a dude with some clay, <laughs> make mine X lapsed." Well, here's the important question: Is it regular clay or is it radioactive clay? Because I mean, they're they're two very very different things, aren't they? We'll just leave that for the Puppet Master, I guess. But uh, thank you so much for writing in on uh, on that weird, weird Thor story and uh, for sharing all your thoughts on uh, this essential run of episodes. So thank you so, so much. Next up, we got Billy talking about episode 13. He says, hey, Chris, glad to have sparked some good memories with Reggie. You can really go down a rabbit hole with the chicken or egg deal. And uh, what Doc is referring to here, if you hadn't listened to episode 13... We were talking about how, and this is a conversation that Reggie and I would have all the time because we were kind of obsessed with um, culture's effect on, on fiction and fiction's effect on culture. And that's the chicken and the egg thing here because so much of what we think about as being cultural may have had its roots in fiction. And conversely, so many of the you know seminal fictional stories out there have a basis in reality or anecdotal experience. And the question is, like, which which affects which more, right? I mean, think about, like, Sherlock Holmes. Think about detectives in general. You know, we picture detectives a certain way because we picture Sherlock Holmes. But, and I mean, I don't have any kind of context for this, but was Sherlock Holmes based off of anybody? Was that look, was that behavior, was that based off of anybody? Or did that just become, you know, universal shorthand for detective? You know, you think about movies, like a movie I never saw, but one that I know... I don't want to say inspired a generation, but it affected a generation. Think about a movie like Clueless, you know, where they had, like, this weird version of teen speak, and then suddenly it became real teen speak, right? It's uh, what affects what. And and that's just something that we were talking about uh, in episode 13 as it pertained to the way that Stan Lee portrayed the Beatniks, you know? Was, uh, was this Stan's firsthand experience, or was he maybe projecting the way he thought a beatnik would speak, would behave, and thereby affecting the way that we, the readers, the viewers, the audience, views beatniks. You know, which is which. It's uh, I mean, I'm definitely thinking about it too much, and I'm trying to analyze something that Stan probably didn't give two seconds thought to, but uh, that's kind of what I do. Uh, Billy continues, This issue sounds like fun, even if a bit contrived, pitting the teams at odds. These early issues look really bad nowadays in regards to Professor X and his indiscretions. But hey, they're just funny books after all. I mean, more to my point there. These are these are just silly Silver Age stories. But yeah, Professor X is uh, yeah, the, a lot of his behaviors here didn't uh, didn't age well. And of course, as we mentioned during the discussion of episode thirteen, which had the Avengers versus X Men slap fight and hair pulling extravaganza, 
eh, a bit contrived. Yeah, rather than Cyclops just saying, hey guys, listen, we can't let you take out Lucifer because Lucifer's heart is attached to a bomb that will destroy Antarctica if something happens to him. Instead of saying that, Cyclops just optic blasts Thor's hammer. It's like, uh, well, maybe. Uh, Billy wraps up with, keep the wheels moving forward, and I look forward to more X-Fun. Thanks. Well, thank you for being here. It really, really means a lot. And I always look forward to hearing your thoughts on these issues. So thank you so, so much. Now into plugs. Uh, if anybody out there would like to write in and be part of the show, share your thoughts on anything X or anything at all, I guess, you could find me several different ways. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. You can find me on Instagram at 90sXmen. You can shoot me an email at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com, or you can call into the X-Labs hotline at 623-396-JERK. Uh, for blog posts and show notes, you can go over to chrisoninfinitearths.com. You can join us on that Facebook group that we talked about a little while ago. It is 90s X-Men on Facebook. Finally, for all your Chris and Reggie Comics commentary listening needs, you can head over to chrisandreggie.podbean.com. And if while you're there you like what you hear, or at least appreciate the effort that goes into it each and every day, it would mean so much to me if you would uh, spread the word, share the show, tell a friend or two, and uh, help me to grow this thing just as big as we can get it. It would really, really mean a lot to me. Speaking of which, it means a lot to me that you'd uh, allow me to be part of your day-to-day. You'd let me occupy your ears for uh, uh, nearing on uh, three quarters of an hour. It really, really means a lot. So thank you all so, so much. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.
Hey, how's it going everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 16 of The Essential X-Lapsed. Uh, the Essentials are back and uh, we're back with our flagship book here. This is X-Men number 11, had a May 1965 cover date. Story is called The Triumph of Magneto. Written and edited by Stan Lee, pencils Jack Kirby, inks Chick Stone, letters Artie Simek. Colors, well, no one credited, but in the case of this issue, they might prefer it that way because, oof, this is, this is not a pretty issue. Uh, cover price, 12 cents. Now, we don't usually discuss the cover all that often on the show. Covers are covers, right? Some are iconic, some are just kind of there. This one I feel like we need to mention because, well, uh, hmm, how do you how do you put this kindly here? Uh, it uh, it ain't got no alibi. Um, it's ugly. Ugly. It's it's not not a good looking cover. It almost looks like Kirby had like a pre drawn background of a city street, like ready to go for any book, and then they place some awkward X Men color forms on top of it. Like it is. It it just looks very, very off. Now, we're going to meet the character, uh, The Stranger, here in this issue. And uh, on the cover, The Stranger is just kind of there. (laughs) He's just placed on this street scene. Um, Now, Beast, he's there. He looks high as a kite. Kind of like he might have just finished licking some stamps at the Coffee of Go-Go. It's a brutally ugly cover. Um, And, you know, the art all throughout this issue is just a bit off. Um, Backgrounds are even more sparse than normal. And it's uh, just not going to be a very pleasant book to look at. Uh, Hopefully the story will make up for that. So uh, let's hop on in. Now we open with the X-Men reporting to Professors X and S as the former had sent out an emergency alarm. Now Warren, he asks, what's up? To which Scott tells him to shut up. Okay. Uh, Xavier uses his uh, radar image beam in order to reveal that there's a brand new presence headed their way. One more powerful than any they'd ever seen before. Now, since this is the X-Men, everybody assumes that this new being is a mutant. Also, since this is the X-Men, they worry about racing to recruit this hitherto undiscovered mutant before Magneto can. Uh, the radar imager begins to take shape, and it's, an, it's a humanoid form, but with no detail. Then, it explodes and vanishes. Now, Xavier is just beside himself, gobsmacked, that this newbie is so powerful that it could shatter his vaunted image beam that uh, we'd never heard of until right this very second. Now, Beast calls for the crew to leap into action and goes to perform a backflip off the wall for some reason. Uh, Unfortunately for him, that rascal, Bobby Drake, who, if you'll recall, is only 16 years old, decides to freeze the entire wall, furniture and all, just to make his teammate slip and fall. That rhymed a lot. Uh, Jean manages to catch Hank with her TK and uh, gently places him down. Now, speaking of Kid Cool, by the way, you'll all be quite relieved to learn that he's got his booties back. So uh, you all can quit complaining about it in the letters pages, eh? Now, Xavier dispatches the kids to track down this new threat, or friend, and he stops just short of giving Bobby some demerits for his horseplay before we shift scenes. And we head over to a boarding house, uh, assumedly somewhere nearby. There, the ugliest man Jack Kirby has ever drawn stands before a mirror adjusting his tie. This is The Stranger. 
Now, he is joined by the old battle axe who owns this house, and she tells him that uh, she's going to need a full week's scratch, which uh, sounds a little bit fetishy, but uh, she actually just means money here. Or, in her words, cabbage, jack, moolah, and dough. I mean, she's saying everything but money. The stranger thankfully knows exactly what she means, and so he reaches into his suit jacket and then uh, pr- produces a wad of cash that could probably choke Galactus. Now, we follow the stranger through the streets of New York City where, uh, well, he becomes tired of the foot traffic and decides to just walk on air. Now, the citizens of New York assume that this is just some sort of publicity stunt, despite the fact that, you know, they, they live in the same city as Thor, Spider-Man, Iron Man. You know, folks who uh, swoop through the sky all the friggin' time. Now, the stranger feels himself being drawn to a nearby building by some sort of attraction. And so, he walks right through the wall and winds up stood before Magneto and the Brotherhood. I mean, who else was it going to be, right? Now, just then, Angel flies over to a window washer to see if he'd seen anything strange. And dude's like, yeah, I have seen something strange. You. And Angel flies away. Cyclops, in his uh, Ben Grimm best, a trench coat and wide-brimmed hat, he listens in on two police officers chatting up the weird air-walking stranger. Now, the cops notice him, and they think he looks suspicious. And in fairness, he is in a trench coat and a wide-brimmed hat like a creep. They question him, and naturally, they want to see him without his ruby quartz shades. So they wrestle them off his face, resulting in Scott blasting the bejesus out of the ground, a fire hydrant, and one of the officer's guns, which he had drawn and ready to fire. So, uh, don't don't mess with these cops. The officers immediately realize that this uh, weirdo in a trench coat must be, quote, the mutant called Cyclops. And they suggest that he might be more dangerous than that nut bar they just saw walking on air. So, um, do we call, do we consider that fear and hate? Maybe? I don't know. Now, lucky for Cyclops, he's able to find his shades, and he gets alley-ooped to higher ground by the barefoot beast's bare feet. Look at me being a beat poet. Now, Hank and Scott then bounce from building to building before diving onto an ice cylinder, compliments of Kid Cool. Not sure why this bit is necessary, but at least it allows Bobby to get his stuff in in a more productive way than just icing up a wall at Xavier's. Now, Jean helps Scott out of the ice slide gimmick, which prompts him to call her, quote, good girl. Jean compares this to Richard Chamberlain saying, my darling. Now, Chamberlain uh, was apparently a teen idol back in the long ago, and uh, he's actually still alive, so happy 87th, Richard. Uh, So we know Jean's still got the hot pants for Slim, right? Now, usually, these thoughts are, like, immediately reciprocated on the page with a Cyclops thought balloon going gaga, but uh, not today. Now, Bobby makes himself even more useful by crafting a flight of ice steps to help the X-Men peep in on some second-story apartments. Uh, This flight of stairs, however, looks like it leads nowhere. So, oh, that Bobby. Back to the baddies. Now, the self-identified stranger, he's going to refer to himself as a stranger the entire issue. Now, he's been offered the opportunity to join Magneto, and he wonders why he would ever agree to this. And so Magneto wraps him up in some metal debris that uh, just so happened to be littering this room. Uh, The toad cheers on like a lunatic throughout. Then the stranger finds himself underwater. And then in a volcano. This is all thanks to some mastermind illusioning. The stranger hasn't the time nor patience for these parlor tricks. And so he explodes from his metallic bindings, sending debris right back at the Brotherhood. 
He then emits a beam that turns Mastermind into a stone statue. Old M.M. is so heavy that he crashes through the floor into the jewelry store below, and the proprietor of the place rushes out the door to call for help, and the X-Men hear that call and spring into action. Tell you what, if you're a, uh, you know, a, a crew of supervillains here, uh, is hiding out right above a jewelry store the best place to... Uh, I don't know. Now, as luck would have it, when Mastermind went crashing through the floor, it also caused a great big hole to form in the brick wall of the place. Somehow. Angel swoops right in. And we might assume that Iceman whipped up another flight of stairs, because inside the X-Men confront the Brotherhood, and the stranger just kind of stands there. Angel finds himself attacked by Quicksilver, but then Iceman absolutely unloads onto Pietro, freezing him solid. Wanda is quite displeased, and uh, pulls a reverse Pietro, claiming that uh, no one shall ever harm her brother. And so she hexes something. Uh, Kirby doesn't even bother to draw a background here. All we see is Bobby and Hank kind of tripping over. I mean, Wanda's hex power is basically just tossing a banana peel under someone's foot, right? So it works. Angel swoops in again. He's doing a lot of swooping today. He goes to punch Magneto, but he and the stranger are in a protective magnetic bubble. The stranger then mocks Magneto, saying that he has no use for a shield, and in fact he tires of this place completely and goes to take his leave via his Cone of Energy. He offers Magneto the opportunity to join him, and our bucket-headed baddie hops to it, and Toad follows as well. The Cone of Energy floats away, and none of the X-Men can even see it leave. It passes by Scott and Jean, who are running up a flight of stairs. Uh, Not the ice variety, either, so what was even the point of that? Um, Now, Scott rushes into the room where the brouhaha took place. Jean is fearful that something bad might happen to her beloved darling, but dares not vocalize it. Inside, Wanda is hex-dropping chunks of ceiling onto the beast, but he he catches them with his groovy tootsies and starts spinning the lot of it in the air. Cyclops then blasts the debris to bits with his cursed optic beams. Now, check this out. Jeannie takes this opportunity to rush toward Wanda, claiming that she's been looking to throw down with the pretender for ages now. Wanda tells Jean not to flatter herself, because there's nothing personal between them. All the witch wants to do is check in on the Pietro Popsicle to make sure he's okay. Cyclops uses his optic blast to... Melt Quicksilver free. Um, And he's no worse for wear, either. Just a little groggy is all. Now, it's here that the Maximoffs agree that their time serving Magneto is over. Scott's relieved because he never thought these two belonged with the evil mutants. Angel then, well, you guessed it, he swoops in to inform the boss man that Magneto, Toad, and the stranger have vanished. Pietro wonders where this new mutant might have gotten off to, and Cyclops doesn't know. All he does know is that the professor said that this fellow was the most powerful mutant of all. He then officially offers the Maximoffs the opportunity to join the X-Men, and many a letter hack is waiting for their response with bated breath. And, well, they turn him down. Pietro says they've had enough conflict to last them a lifetime. Well, just wait until next episode, then. Cyclops makes another appeal and nearly gets Wanda to change her mind which causes Jeannie to go green with envy. Pietro cuts him off, though, claiming that, as far as he and his sister are concerned, he is the one giving orders now. Huh. And they leave. Now, Wanda says they might return someday. And, uh, well, someday, as far as we're concerned, is next episode. 
Scene shift. The stranger's cone of energy stops spinning in a wooded area. Magneto is impressed with this display of power and even considers this ugly stranger to be on the same level as himself. Magneto asks what his mutant power is, and the stranger reveals that he is not, in fact, a mutant. Boy, I mean, Magneto's mutant radar really sucks, doesn't it? I mean, he thought Thor was a mutant? Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch? Now, the stranger? Uh, The stranger then grows to an immense size. He grabs Magneto and the Toad and then, I don't know, blows his nose on him? I I don't know. Whatever the case, Magneto and Toad are now covered in a thin, membranous film that uh, the stranger refers to as anti-magnetic. Okay, so neither baddie can move. Meanwhile, back at the mansion, uh, Professor X examines the Mastermind statue, and uh, Mastermind is still alive but altered irreversibly. Uh, Cyclops wonders if this stranger could possibly be as dangerous as Magneto, and Xavier tells him that he makes Magneto look like a child. And so, minutes later, we're in the X-Copter. Xavier is drawn to the stranger via mental emanations, which I guess that's as good as an explanation as we need, right? Anyway, they find Magneto and Toad all wrapped in that gunk. Xavier waits for Warren to touch Magneto before telling them not to touch Magneto. What a dick. Um, Now, Warren is shocked, silly, by some strange force shooting out of this membrane. Then, the stranger appears. He informs the good guys that the membranous cocoons that he's trapped Magneto and Toad in are for their own good. You see, they're going to protect them for the journey they're about to embark on. Xavier posits that this journey will take them off Earth, to which the stranger says, Duh. Well, no, he actually just repeats that he is a stranger. Um... His answer to everything for this issue is, I am a stranger. It's like, hey, uh, stranger, what time is it? I am a stranger. You want chocolate or vanilla? I am a stranger. Yeah, change for a dollar? I am a stranger. It's awful. Anyway, the stranger then beams away with Magneto and Toad, vowing never, ever to return. The X-Men kind of just stand there gobsmacked for a minute before, for whatever reason, the police rush in on the scene. Xavier freaks out because he cannot be seen with these mutants. And so Beast pulls a distraction to draw the officer's attention away from the creepy bald man in a wheelchair being loaded onto a helicopter. The X-Men then head home, all the way to Charles Xavier's house, which, I mean, now seems kind of silly, doesn't it? I mean, Xavier doesn't want anyone to know he's with the X-Men, but the X-Men's helicopter keeps taking off and landing at his house. Uh, Oh, well, Silver Age, right? Um, Now we wrap up with Xavier taking some names out of his Cerebro button panel. Those names are Mastermind, Magneto, and Toad. The Scarlet Witch, Quicksilver, and Blob remain, and uh, hey, look at that. Eunice has been added. Hey. Now as we close, Cerebro starts pinging like crazy. Xavier suggests that... (laughs) You'll never believe it, but uh, the X-Men might be just about to face their deadliest danger yet. You know, just like every other issue of this book. And that's where we leave it. Uh, Next issue is the uh, mutant threat of Juggernaut? I I mean, I I mean, he's not. Why is Cerebro pinging? Come on, why is Cerebro pinging? Anyway, we will get to that in a couple of episodes time because next we're going to be taking a look at Avengers number 16 to see where Wanda and Pietro will be getting off to. Now, let's say we hop into our letters page here. This is some of the some of the funnest parts of the Essentials episodes here are taking a look at these, you know, of-the-day letters pages here. Now, Stan opens by gleefully informing us that he finally deep-sixed Magneto, just like we've all been asking him to. 
he's almost positive that this will trigger a whole bunch of letters demanding that he be brought back right away, because, uh, you know, fans be fickle, yo. And uh, speaking of which, let's look at our first letter. This is George in Michigan. And he'd like to take Magneto's side in the should-he-stay-or-should-he-go debate. Now, the way he looks at it, there are 300,000 readers of the X-Men, and only 1% of them dislike Magneto. We're, we're going to need you to show your work there, Georgie. I, I don't know where you get these numbers from. Well, we do have an idea of where he might have gotten some of these numbers from. You see, he took a vote where he works. Yes. <laughs> he took a vote where he works. Uh, where 93 out of 93 people he works with voted to keep Magneto. Could you imagine this goofball coming up to you in a professional setting in 1965... Asking what you thought about Magneto. I mean, would you... would <laughs> You know, this is very, very early in the organized fandom of comics, right? This is when comics were mostly for kids, and, and they made no bones about that. It's not like today where we say they're for all ages when they're really just catering to, uh, you know, people in their 30s, 40s, and, and so on. So 1965. You're you're in a you're in a professional environment here. You're uh, you're answering phones or you're you're writing up schematics for something. You're you're taking reports, and some dude comes up to you and says, "Hey, uh, there's this book called the X Men, and uh, they've got this character named Magneto. And uh, hey, here here he is. Look at him. See, he's got a he's got a helmet, and uh, he's he's got a furrowed brow and and horns on his helmet. And you think he should stick around or no? I, I mean." I don't know. Everybody says to keep him. So uh, I I think they were probably just being polite and trying to get uh, George to go away. Now, George, he's also worried that this might mean we'll never see the Maximoffs again. To which Stan says, hey, wait and see. For, like, a week or two. Because Avengers number 16 is going to be here, like, right away. It might even be on the shelves now, for all I know. So that is Georgie's letter. Next up, Scott in Pennsylvania. Now, he's been a Marvel fan for approximately three years. Like, isn't three years a little too short a period of time to toss an approximately in there? Like, I mean, I've liked comic books for approximately nine days now, give or take. I mean, come on. Uh, He's in graduate school at Lehigh University, where he also teaches calculus. And he founded the Marvel Mathematicians Comic Club. Hmm, I'm sure he could have thrown a Mary in there, right? Uh, he took a poll, speaking of polls here, where wherein his clubsters voted the Hulk as the best Marvel character. Doctor Strange and the X-Men came in second and third. Now, Stan, pleased to meet this academic, suggests that Scott try to get a comicsology class started up at Lehigh. Wow, digital comics back in 1965? No, well, different comicsology. Uh, Barry in Massachusetts, he claims to read X-Men every time he gets a haircut. Uh, and he agrees with an earlier letter hack, Don, that Wanda and Pietro should not join the X-Men because the team is just fine as it is. Now, as for deputy duties, Barry would like to see the X-Men rotate the position like the Avengers do their chair. His favorites are Cyclops and Kid Cool. He doesn't care much for Angel. He'd like to see Xavier get a new power. Really? Uh, and he thinks that Beast and Marvel Girl are just fine. Barry closes out by saying he will join the Merry Marvel Marching Society. Now, if we were to give out awards for, like, the most bat-spit-crazy letter that we're going to get, it would go to Vincent in Michigan. Because dude is going to lay down the law for heroes and villains, so uh, listen up, chumps. 
Uh, one, good and evil are equally opposing forces. Two, each hero and villain has a given amount of power and value, and this must never vary. Three, heroes and villains must only do battle with foes having equivalent power. Four, heroes and villains having each other's own value must not be featured more than a set number of times a year. What the hell is he talking about? I mean, is this a problem that we actually have here? I don't know what he's getting on about. Five, no, no I'm done. Uh, this dude's whacked. Um, these are the scrawlings of a madman. And uh, the reply here is, is fantastic. Stan... He doesn't even pretend to have the foggiest idea what Vincent is going on about here. He mocks Vinny's missive, claiming that, uh, well, they received it, but they still can't interpret it. They published it anyway, which is great, but, uh, oh man, I shared this, uh, this letter on social media, uh, not too long ago. It's just like, what in the hell is this dude trying to say? And, and why? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, next up, Rick in Pennsylvania. He loved X-Men number 9, but he questions the logic of Professor X being whisked away by a dust devil. Really? That's where the story loses you? Okay. Uh, Rick's also joined the MMMS. Martin in Florida. He says the X-Men have come a long way in the year they've been around. He likes how the members have their own personalities now. He likes Beast being intellectual, Cyclops being the responsible one, he liked Iceman better as a snowman and wants to know why he lost his booties. Well, he, you know, he's, he's got them back now. He likes Marvel Girl, but says that she changes her headgear a bit too much. Once, dude, she changed it one time. One time. This is like people complaining that Jean dies all the time. I mean, she, she died once. Well, before Krakoa, of course. Uh, Angel, he says, hasn't changed at all. Uh, he's still just the dude with the wings. He would like to see Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch join up citing that it would make the X-Men the first team mag with two females on it. Well, that's a very interesting point, isn't it? Uh, next up, Pat in North Carolina. Likes Scott as the leader, likes the X-Men in matching costumes, isn't interested in a romance between Jean and Scott, yet our, uh, our letter hack you know, says this as a g-g-g-g-girl, so she knows a thing or two about romance. This is, these are her words, not mine. Uh, Stan replies by calling her honey and tells her that they'll do their best. <laughs> oh, the 60s. Uh, Kenneth in Virginia. He thinks Pietro and Wanda would spoil the X-Men's dynamic if they joined up. He thinks superhero teams should cap out at five members. He cites a recent issue of Fantastic Four co-starring the Avengers, wherein, in his words, heroes were tripping over each other. Huh, I wonder if Kenneth is still reading the books nowadays and what he thinks about heroes tripping over one another. Uh, we close out with Stan promising a new artist on X-Men number 12. It's going to be Alex Toth under Kirby's layouts. And I tell you what, it's a welcome change, especially after this ugly issue. Stan also promises that we're going to be learning more about Professor X. And indeed we will. The story is called The Origin of Professor X, after all. Into the uh, proto-bullpen bulletin section, the special notes section... Stan says he gets a lot of letters from readers citing that the Marvel mags sell out too fast at the newsstand. And Stan advises that these would-be readers uh, repeatedly tell their retailers to make mine Marvel until they order more copies or, I don't know, call the police and have them hauled away. Speaking of Marvel comics, let's get into the mighty, mighty Marvel checklist. 
More books on sale this month include Fantastic Four number 39. This is A Blind Man Shall Lead Them, where Daredevil guest stars as the FF are powerless and pitted against Doctor Doom. Amazing Spider-Man number 25 features Pete captured by J. Jonah Jameson. Avengers number 16, The Old Order Changeth, which uh, we will be covering in depth next episode. Thor number 116 features The Trial of the Gods. Strange Tales number 155, I'm going to assume this is a typo, or we went into the future because Strange Tales should only be up to like issue 132 at this point. Uh, now, Stan hasn't written the Torch and Things segment yet, but he promises it'll be a doozy in, in Stanley style. Uh, Doctor Strange is also featured in a nameless land in a timeless time. Tales of Suspense number 66, Don Heck draws a Tuma, so... Be excited? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, also, Captain America has a banger of a cliffhanger. In Tales to Astonish number 68, Kirby returns to the Hulk and Giant Man fights someone. Finally, in Sergeant Fury number 18, we got some tragedy for the Howlers. So, what did we think about this issue? Well, wasn't the worst thing in the world, right? Uh, <laughs> it was okay. Uh, just kind of ugly. Um, it was pretty interesting that... How receptive uh, Stan seems to be toward the uh, the letter hacks here. Everybody's complaining, or at least an overwhelming amount, at least from what we've seen, are complaining that uh, we're getting a little too much Magneto, right? We're not privy to sales figures. I don't even know if they'd have sales figures um, for the more recent issues to this point. So it seems like Stan is trying to... Uh, Trying to appease those who uh, are writing in, the uh, the most vocal of the fans here, which is kind of weird since, you know, Stan is kind of famous for uh, saying, you know, don't give the fans what they think they want. And indeed, I mean, the very first letter we get here is saying, keep Magneto. So uh, we, uh, we be a fickle bunch, aren't we? I thought the way of taking Magneto off the board was pretty interesting because, I mean, the Marvel Universe was very young at this point, right? We don't know if he's coming back. <laughs> if we're in 1965 and we're following along here, we don't have, you know, the half-century worth of hindsight to know what Magneto will become. So, for all we know, this very well could be it for uh, for old Buckethead. I do like how neat and tidy this all wrapped up here. Uh, the Stranger is very much like a deus ex machina-type character who, really, we don't know much about him other than he's supremely powerful and can do whatever he wants to do because... He can do it, I guess. Uh, and what better way to take the entire Brotherhood out, right? Magneto and Toad are whisked away to wherever the hell. Mastermind is a statue in the uh, Xavier Mansion. And Pietro and Wanda have put their days of adventuring behind them. You know, until the very next episode. But uh, hey, you know, it took them off the board here. They turned down uh, the invite to join the X-Men, which... I feel like is another reaction to the letter hacks here because we did have folks who wanted them to join, right? But we also had folks who didn't want them to join, but they didn't want them to be bad guys either. So I think this might be a way to appease as many people as possible. You take Pietro and Wanda out of the Brotherhood, you turn them good, but you don't just force them into the X-Men. It's another way to show that the Marvel Universe is one cohesive unit, right? You have uh, characters from the X-Universe sliding over into the Avengers book. It's, uh, I mean, I don't think we need a spoiler alert there that Wanda and Pietro will join the Avengers. But I thought this was a nice way to kind of draw a line under the... Uh, I guess maybe we can call this the first arc 
of the X-Men here We're, we're taking the big bad off the table We're uh, moving on to new and different things here uh, When we get back to the X-Men title in a couple of episodes We're going to be meeting the Juggernaut A few episodes after that we're going to be meeting the Sentinels We're really building a non-Magneto X lore here We're, we're filling out the rogues gallery I mean, we're also going to meet like the Plant Man and the Locust And, uh, you know, a whole bunch of weirdos that uh, we're not going to see a whole lot of But uh, we've also got the Mimic and Banshee And it's, it's going to be a good time We're going to be uh, seeing some seminal stories And uh, it's nice to have Magneto and the Brotherhood Just kind of put off to the side for a little bit Give us a little bit of breathing room Give some of the other bad guys the opportunity to uh, to shine and to establish themselves without uh, the constant race to recruit, right, from Professor X and Magneto, trying to get the new mutant threat to join their side rather than the other. What else we got here? Um, I've mentioned it throughout the, uh, the episode here, but the art here was not great. Uh, not a great showing for Kirby. Uh, the coloring was weird. Just not a pleasant book to look at. Uh, totally a seminal story here, an important one in X-Men history, but uh, eh, not a pretty one. But uh, I think that's all I got to say about the issue. Uh, before we get out of here, let's take a look into the mailbag where we're going to hear from our good friend Damien. And he's talking about X-Men number one. Now, Damien says, My plan was to skip over Essential X-Lapse, just as I do with the Sunday specials, in hope of one day getting close to catching up with you. Every time I open Podbean, I'm told I have 30-odd podcasts outstanding, and the vast majority are Chris-related, and I just feel so guilty for falling behind. But the next regular X-Lapse available on Unlimited is another Excalibur, and I really wasn't in the mood for that, so I had to decide whether to time travel to the Hellfire Gala or to 1963. Clearly, I chose to go with X-Men number one. And <laughs> it's so funny you say that. And first, uh, no worries on being behind here. I know I, I crank out probably way too much uh, content here. That might be slowing down once we break the uh, the one year of Daily Show's uh, milestone in just about a month. Uh, I think it was the end of August was the uh, last time the channel took a day off from putting out a show uh, every day. So maybe once that, is, that milestone's done, I'll, I'll slow down a little bit. But we'll... Uh, I guess we'll play that by ear and see. But it's funny you mention having to choose between Excalibur and uh, 1963 because I had a similar quandary not too long ago. I've mentioned before that I'm usually ahead a couple of days on, on scripting. And uh, I got to X-Corp Day, another Teeny Howard book. And I just couldn't. <laughs> I couldn't do it. It was, was X-Corp number two for the Hellfire Gala. And I had the book on the nightstand, but I also had the old iPad on there, and I was like, oh, boy, what do I do? Do I do X-Corp, or do I just, you know, do I read about the Juggernaut Storm in the Mansion? And, uh, well, I went with the Juggernaut Storm in the Mansion. It's just, I, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. That said, I'm very, very happy to hear you uh, hear your thoughts on these uh, Silver Age stories here. I was hoping that you would check them out, and uh, we'd get some of your takes. Uh, Damien continues. Your history with the early X-Men is very different from my own. My first superhero comic was a Marvel UK comic called Thor and the X-Men, which reprinted the late 1960s Roy Thomas Warner Roth stories. The era they were covering included the origin backup, so I was familiar with them. I then got into US comics in 1986 via X-Factor, which featured those same characters, but later on in their careers. I didn't read X-Men number one until years later when I got a reprint edition of number one, which was released in 1991 to coincide with the Claremont Jim Lee X-Men number one. 
By the time I read it, I was steeped in X-Men continuity, so my main reaction was that there was so much missing from the story. No actual origin in that first issue. And you know I never looked at it that way. I'm trying to think of all of the uh, the Silver Age Marvel stuff here that I can remember off the top of my head. I mean, Fantastic Four number one did show them getting bombarded by uh, cosmic rays. Uh, the first appearance of the Hulk did show him turning into the Hulk. Same with Iron Man, same with Spider-Man. They all had origins in their first issues here, but uh, not the X-Men. They were just introduced as sort of just these interchangeable characters with powers that were in uh, similar costumes here. It's a very different take if you look at it that way. And I honestly, to this point, had never actually looked at it that way. So, wow. Damien continues. My other main takeaway was just how garish the art looked. It was reprinted on clean white paper, and they clearly didn't adjust, didn't adjust the colors to look more like they would have looked on newsprint. For this reread, I went to Unlimited, and the colors had definitely been adjusted. They're still much brighter than they would have looked on newsprint, but far less garish than the 1991 reprint. Within the episode, you ask who could have colored this story. My understanding, as a fake-ass comics historian, is that all Marvel books from 1961 to 1969 are usually credited to Millie the model artist Stan Goldberg, who was the in-house colorist during this period. I've seen exceptions noted, though apparently uh, Jim Steranko tended to color his own art, and I've read interviews where various writers and editors have mentioned having to color a few pages here and there when deadlines were short. We also know that Marie Severin was in the bullpen throughout the 60s. I've seen the suggestion that she colored more comics pages than anyone else in the history of comics. She famously colored the entire output of EC Comics and then worked at Marvel for decades. She would often do a page or two in a comic uncredited, and some people argue that this makes her the most prolific. And yes, you've discovered my, uh, my quandary and my conflict here. I did a whole bunch of research on who could have colored these things, and... From sources that I would usually trust, I'm, I get conflicting information here. I've, I've seen Marie Severin. I've seen uh, Stan Goldberg. I've seen Ditko and Kirby. It, it's weird. Um, and if you're, you're still listening to this point, we still don't have accredited colorist on these books. So it's uh, it's very bizarre. And I, and I feel weird attributing it to someone who might not be the one. Uh, I, I'm just very, very weird about that kind of thing here. So I guess maybe I could just saying. Colored by the bullpen, or something like that. An all-inclusive sort of a thing. Uh, Damien continues. Talking of being a fake-ass comics historian, I feel this book really shows some of the push and pull of the Kirby and Lee relationship. At times, the art and script are, slight, are going in a slightly different direction. Clearly, Kirby was drawing Xavier as an older man, but Lee complicates it with his reference to his parents working on the bomb. Now, this would make Xavier 20 at the oldest, which really doesn't fit. Xavier's mood swings suggest that this book wasn't dialogued in one session. Maybe he was writing them piecemeal as Kirby delivered the pages, and he didn't really have the characters set just yet. I definitely think you're onto something there, uh, and that's... When I first found out about the, uh, the Marvel method of writing comics, it, I couldn't wrap my head around it because it just felt... Uh, I don't know, it felt counterproductive to me. I, I know that it uh, it's all about speed and expediency and stuff like that, but I don't know, it made them feel, for lack of a better term, like less pure to me. Like, I, I, I felt like it didn't have a, like a singular sort of voice, right? Just the idea that Stan puts together a, like a very basic overview and then just gives this overview to an artist who cranks out 20 pages that may or may not fall in line with what he wanted to have happen. 
I don't know. <laughs> I was always like just bamboozled by the entire creative endeavor there. I, I didn't understand it. And uh, back when I was, you know, a younger man or a child, really, um, and thought about, hey, maybe one day I'll write comics. I would always run into the Marvel method and be like, how would I even make that work? <laughs> I don't know that I'm, I don't know that I'm creative enough. I don't know that I'm smart enough. I, I don't know. I mean, props to these guys to for making it making it work as uh, as cleanly as they did. Damien continues. It also seems to me that Kirby definitely intended Cyclops to be the leader and the most effective character, while Lee added in a rivalry with Angel. All the decisive actions in the battle are taken by Cyclops. Similarly, Jean is given more agency in the art than in the script, where she has a bad case of the girl, which was one of the weakest elements of Lee's writing. They never really had any individual characteristics, and you're totally spot on there. It's Their only characteristic was that they were... The girl. And um, in future episodes of The Essentials here, Jean will be referred to simply as the girl. Not from me, but from like the professor and from Scott. <laughs> they, just, they just call her girl. I can't remember where I read this, but uh, someone, uh, perhaps a fellow fake ass comics historian, was doing like maybe not so much a study, but an observation on how uh, women were treated in the Silver Age between Marvel and DC. How characters like Lois Lane and uh, Iris West were reporters, and uh, Gene Loring was a lawyer over in DC, but you come over to the Marvel side, and all the characters are uh, secretaries and uh, assistants, and they're all, like, madly in love with whoever they work for. Which, I don't know if that's telling (laughs) about Stan Lee, but... uh, there's definitely a difference between the way Marvel and DC presented uh, the girls back in the uh, Silver Age. Damien continues, It's also interesting to note that this is a book about teenagers produced by two men in their 40s, and therefore falls into some of the traps of these stories. The main teenage characteristics that come to the fore are being sex-mad and wearing hideous clothes. As you go through it, they'll be interesting to see if these get better when Roy Thomas and Gary Friedrich, who were in their 20s at the time, write the book. And yeah, totally. I'm, I'm sure that's not something that crossed my mind the first time I read this back in the long ago, but uh, reading it now with, a, with, with like a fake-ass eye toward analysis, it's quite apparent that Stan and Jack are uh, a generation removed from these uh, characters that they're trying to portray here. And it reminds me of uh, the first time I you know, ran headlong into the cringe factor of uh, a writer who was... Uh, generationally uh, divided from the characters they were writing. And I think the first time I was cognizant of that was in a Chris Claremont story when he returned to the X-Books and was, like, using, like, early 90s slang. (laughs) And it was, like, the year 2000 at this point, which, I mean, imagine, like, somebody trying to tell, like, an Austin Powers reference right now and and using that topically. It's just... It's out of date, right? I also remember uh, Claremont doing Sovereign 7. I, I covered a, an issue of that on the blog ages ago, and it featured uh, Superman and Lois Lane, and Lois was with the main character of Sovereign 7. I don't remember their name, but uh, like was saying, like, strike a pose, girl. And it's like, dude, <laughs> come on. This is like physical cringe. So yeah, it's a little awkward at times here, isn't it? And it's gonna get more so. Uh, Damien continues. I love the Silver Age silliness of Magneto signing his metallic dust message. 
You just know in a modern reinterpretation of that scene, it would be his logo, which he would then sell merch of. I love the idea of the U.S. military just letting a group of teenagers have a go at defending their base. Doesn't feel very authentic today. It's also weird to see the X-Men embraced as heroes by the establishment. There's no anti-mutant feeling at all in this story. It's just mutant supremacy versus coexistence. We're not seeing any hatred or fear just yet. And yeah, I mean, there's a lot of silliness in this issue, right? Uh, Like Magneto just walking in. It's just so, so bizarre. But uh, as for the fear and or hate, um, yeah, it's clear that uh, that wasn't part of the story just yet. And when it finally does become part of the story, it is very, very awkwardly done, right? Um, It's just like a group of people decide, hey, we don't trust mutants anymore. And uh, they run with it. (laughs) It's about the size of it. Uh, Damien continues. Overall, rereading this was a great source of joy, despite the iffy sexual politics. It was just fun. I definitely enjoyed it far more than I did in 1991. Clearly, 47-year-old Damien has a different taste to 17-year-old Damien. I don't own the essentials for this era, so I will be reading these issues for the first time beyond issue number one. I'm looking forward to it, even though I know there's some ropey stuff coming up. And boy, is there. I, I can't wait to hear your thoughts on issue three when uh, Professor X, uh, well, he uh, he admits his, his lust for <laughs> someone far younger than him. It's very iffy on the uh, sexual politics side here. Uh, Jean, the girl, I mean, and that will continue. Uh, the, uh, the weird fascination with Jean from the guys, except for Bobby, who just sees her as a, as a girl and doesn't really care much about her. But the others are going to be... Uh, they're gonna be really uh, courting, <laughs> and it's uh, it's almost horrifying to consider that she's living in this mansion with uh, you know, four hormonal boys and a creepy professor who harbors a secret lust for her. It's uh, not ideal, and uh, I think I mentioned it when Jean's parents showed up a few issues later. It's just like they're they're cool with this. <laughs> it just seems very very bizarre. But uh, thank you so much for writing in, Damien. I'm so happy that you're listening to The Essentials here. Uh, I was hoping to hear your thoughts here. And and knowing that uh, these subsequent issues are going to be your first time checking them out, I definitely can't wait to hear your thoughts on those as well. So thank you so much. Next up, my good pal and uh, cohort in Questerdays and Moratory Mondays, Chris Bailey, talking about Jack Kirby. He says, There's some interesting comments on issue 15 about the Kirby art. It's surprising that folks were turning on on the Kirby style this early on. I have a love-hate relationship with different periods of Kirby's work. Early Marvel is some of his foundational work. Kirby's in creation mode. He's designing the look, tech, and vibe of a universe at this point. Many things we have not seen before are being created by Kirby before our very eyes. DC Kirby was his best stuff. New God's Era was his magnum opus. Back to Marvel, and uh, Eternals was very good, basically because it was the New Gods. Then Jack falls apart. His quality on Black Panther and Cap is now dated and he's losing grip. Kirby then goes independent and finds his best self on Captain Victory, and we get a small glimpse of that old Jack magic. Back to DC with superpowers, and by this time, Jack's stuff is totally obsolete. Then into the 90s and post-mortem, we get some of his top stuff, Secret City, and now we're done. All things considered, early X-Men Jack was pretty great, and is in world-building mode, so I guess, for me, the critics in these letters pages can go fly a kite. And yeah, that's a a reference to uh, some of the uh, letter hacks of the day saying, like, Kirby is not an artist, which is odd. Um, Especially with how we look at Kirby nowadays, as, 
you know, part of the Mount Rushmore, right? He's foundational. He is responsible for so much of what, you know, billion-dollar movies are uh, revolving around nowadays. It's uh, so much of that is is Kirby. Uh, most of it is Kirby in look and style, right? Very, very strange that back in, you know, 1963, 64, and 65, we got writers of letters sending in missives saying, like, uh, you know, for the discerning fan, Kirby is not an artist. And while, you know, just like uh, just like Chris says here, I'm also hot and cold on uh, Kirby here. I'll never profess that he's my favorite, and then I'll also, also never profess that he's my least favorite. I, I can appreciate... How important he is uh, And I can appreciate his art for what it is But I definitely agree It's uh, it's weird that these letter hacks are, are, are dismissing the Kirby style already So thank you so much for writing in About your thoughts on uh, Old King Kirby Now finally we have a letter from our friend Billy here Talking about episodes 14 and 15 He says, hey Chris Truthfully I'm not a huge fan of the Savage Land either the issue sounds decent, though, and one that I wouldn't mind reading. As far as Strange Tales is concerned, however, I've heard nothing but ugh when anyone has talked about the Human Torch era. I think I'll let that one slip through the cracks and let you talk about it. Take care, and I look forward to more episodes and talking soon. Well, thank you so much, Billy. And yeah, the Strange Tales stuff is a little a little iffy, right? Um, I think... For the most part, I'm enjoying it most of all because it's my first time ever reading it. I've never done a project like this before, so any rereads I've done of the old issues have just been X-Books. I haven't really broadened the horizons. I, I wouldn't have read a Thor story. I wouldn't have read the Human Torch and Thing versus Scarlet Witch and uh, Quicksilver story. I would have just skipped it. So I think as a novelty, and me seeing these for the first time may have made my impression of them a little bit uh, a little bit kinder. <laughs> Then history might remember it But thank you so much for writing in I'm so happy that you're enjoying the Essential Run And uh, it really means a lot that you're listening But that is going to do it for today If anybody out there is enjoying this Or maybe not enjoying this Hey, feel free to write in and let me know You can find me several different places uh, On Twitter, I'm Ace Comics Instagram, 90s X-Men And, and the Instagram might be going away soon I, am, I, I have no idea what I'm doing there And uh, nobody seems to want me there so uh, we will probably be deep six in that one before long. Uh, you can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com or you can call into the X-Laps voicemail hotline at 623-396-JERK. For blog posts and show notes, you can head to chrisoninfiniteearth.com. You can join us on Facebook. The group is 90s X-Men over there. And uh, finally, for all your Chris and Reggie listening needs, including the full archives of all the X-Lab stuff, you could head to chrisandreggie.podbean.com, and that is available anywhere the internet aggregates noise for your ears. But that's going to do it for today. I'd like to thank you all so much for allowing me to be part of your day today. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.
Hey, how's it going everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 17 of The Essential X-Lapsed, where uh, we are once again not talking about an issue of X-Men. Today we're going to follow two of our, uh, well I guess former sort of kind of cast members of the X-Men title uh, into their new gig. We're going to see what happens when Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch officially throw in with the good guys here. This is Avengers number 16. Had a May 1965 cover date. The story is called The Old Order Changeth, and, uh, well, this one really doesn't need much of an introduction, does it? This is a uh, very seminal Avengers story, right? Uh, I think many of us, if you're listening to a show like this, uh, you probably are at least somewhat familiar with this issue. Uh, written and edited by Stan Lee, with layouts by Jack Kirby, art comes to us from Dick Ayers. Letters Artie Simek, colors uh, someone in the bullpen, maybe a few people in the bullpen. I couldn't tell you for sure. Cover price, 12 cents. Now, we gotta mention the cover for this one, right? It's uh, fairly spectacular, and it's the sort of cover gimmick that, uh, well, both Marvel and DC would use from time to time, where it's, uh, we just got one of the main characters there, who we know will be part of the team, surrounded by pictures of, uh, of potential newcomers here. We see it like on the cover of All-Star Squadron number one, right? You got the table full of uh, photos of uh, characters who would be potential teammates. We've, of course, seen it in Avengers comics. Uh, I think we saw it like in Astonishing X-Men Volume 2 number one, uh, that uh, weird miniseries where we found out that, uh, well, what happened to Wolverine when we thought he died um, (laughs) during uh, some sort of skirmish around the turn of the century. But here we're seeing it for the first time in the Avengers, and uh, it's pretty cool here. We got Captain America stood before, like, a wall with posters on it. And each poster has a different character on it. We got some villains, we got some heroes, we got some former villains. It's a, it's a goodie. And, um, I mean, if you're listening to this show, you are probably familiar with this cover, so I probably should just get on with it, shouldn't I? Now, as we open this one up here, we are picking up from last issue, which, uh, well, uh, we didn't read for the show. Here we have the Avengers. It's Thor, Iron Man, Wasp, and Giant Man. They're in the thick of battle with the Masters of Evil. And the baddies include the Enchantress, the Executioner, the Black Knight, not that Black Knight, and the Melter. The Masters of Evil threaten to destroy the city and, uh, you know, kill a whole lot of civilians unless the Avengers back off. And Pym assumes that they're bluffing, and Thor suggests that maybe they don't take that chance, and uh, wishes that he had the wisdom of Odin to rely on to uh, to guide him in this situation. Now, the Masters of Evil insist that the Avengers surrender, and the Melter melts a lamppost to show that they mean business. <laughs> I tell you what, if that doesn't convince an actual Norse god to stand down, I, I don't know what will. Iron Man then remembers that, you know what, hey, we're an actual team, and we have actual maneuvers in our arsenal. And so he tells Thor it's time to enact Plan D. Now, calling something Plan D tells me that there would be, like, this would be like the Avengers' fourth course of action in a jam, right? You know, Plan A, B, C, and now D. Well, let's keep that in mind as we watch it play out. Now, Thor spins and spins and spins and spins and spins while uh, swinging Molyneux, which literally opens up a portal to another dimension through which the Avengers and half of the Masters of Evil, plus a winged horse, get sucked through. Enchantress and the Executioner, they're able to evade the portal. I guess they're very familiar with Thor's um, spinning and spinning and spinning, so they they know to kind of block it. And so, 
From here we join our heroes, plus the Black Knight and the Melter, somewhere else. Now the baddies charge the goodies, but here's the thing. In this dimension, whatever dimension it is, I mean, not even the Marvel Wiki seems to know, though, uh, honestly, that's not much of a surprise here. Uh, the Marvel Wiki only seems to care about uh, variant covers and uh, kissing up to the, uh, you know, flavors of the week, I suppose. Um, so it's not much of a surprise. Now, in this dimension, the bad guy's powers, they don't work. I mean, how convenient is that? Also, I mean, how likely? I mean, I know, I know. Never mind, never mind. We'll just let it play out. Anyway, the uh, Avengers tie up the bad guys, and they prepare to return back to the 616. Along the way, the Wasp does a little bit of thinking out loud, wondering how Captain America is doing down in South America. And hey, how about we find out? Let's, let's go down to South America, where we join up with Cap and Rick Jones as they're burying Baron Zemo. Now, Zemo perished last issue, which, uh... We, you know, we didn't read for the show, so we'll just have to take Stan's editorial footnote for it. Now, Cap expresses that he doesn't feel so much relieved as he does empty in burying his arch-foe. Now, some natives who have been uh, looking on all bow in reverence to Captain America. He tells them to stand up straight because they're free men now. He and Rick then head over to a nearby jet in order to fly home, but before they get there, they're attacked by some of Zemo's remaining mercenaries. Now, Cap throws himself at them, like as though he's doing uh, like a high cross body off the top rope. It's very, very goofy looking. But then, a mercenary lobs a grenade at the jet, blowing it up real good, before the baddies scurry away back into the jungle. Now, despite not having a way home, Cap is undeterred because, well, he's always got a plan. Meanwhile, back at the Avengers Mansion, we got Iron Man, Wasp, and Giant Man. They're, uh, well, they're all talking about how tired they are of being Avengers. Uh, they need a break, you see. Um, now, Thor, he's not here anymore. He's gone to attend to the Trial of the Gods over in his own book, you know, back when continuity actually mattered. So, yeah, our uh, trio of original Avengers, they're, they're quite tired, and they need some time off. Now, Iron Man suggests that, uh, you know, hey, since Cap and Thor ain't here... How about we just disband while we have the chance? Wow, I mean, talk about the nuclear option, right? But then, the meeting room fills with smoke. Now, Tony goes outside the room to check out what's going on, and he finds that the smoke is emanating from an arrow that had been fired into the wall. He, and we, likely know who's responsible for this, but how about we all just pretend to be surprised anyway when we discover that it was... Hawkeye, who done fired it into the wall. Gasp. Um, now, he explains to the Avengers that uh, he comes in peace, because firing smoke arrows into a wall is always the best way to show that you come in peace. Now, he's actually here because he wants to join the Avengers. Hawkeye then takes us into flashback land, where he recalls a recent adventure he had, which uh, we did not read for the show. This was Tales of Suspense number 57, or as Stan cites it, Iron Man number 57. Hmm, that's a little confusing. Now, in this tale, he and the Black Widow were duped into working for the commies. And so, now he'd like to devote himself to making amends for being a pinko pawn. Now, in order to show what an asset he'd be, he's already bind and gagged Tony Stark's butler. I'm not sure if this is Jarvis or not, but whoever it is, he's tied at the ankles, wrists, and has a gag in his mouth. I mean, remember, he comes in peace. Um, now, Hawkeye fires three arrows at once at the butler, which cuts all three bindings. Now, Giant Man is immediately sold, because endangering their butler is 
just the perfect way to prove your worth, right? Now the wasp says, va-va-voom, which I think is 60s-era lady speak for me likey. Iron Man scurries off to fetch Hawkeye the Book of Avengers bylaws immediately. The following day, uh, Iron Man decides to try and do a little bit more recruiting, you know, filling the ranks while he and the rest of the originals take a step back. And so his first call is to Namor, the Submariner, and, uh, well, Namor tells him to, uh, basically to eat a bag. Um, then we shift scenes to the Swiss Alps, where a far too friendly with each other set of twins currently reside. Now, it is the Maximoffs, naturally, uh, and they're the only reason we're reading this book after all, so of course. Uh, Pietro rushes up with a copy of the Swiss Alps Bugle, which uh, includes an article about how the Avengers are recruiting new members. He suggests that this could be their chance to make good. Now, Wanda's not so sure. After all, they'd only just recently made a vow never to use their powers again for other people. I mean, she says this after they've both changed into their costumes, so, I mean, come on. Uh, She then thinks back to how the pair of them had been manipulated by Magneto, and Stan's editorial footnote tells us to check out practically every issue of X-Men, which is kind of hilarious. Uh, Wanda asks why they didn't just join the X-Men, since, you know, they always admired them anyway. Now, Pietro responds by saying that he wants to forget that they're homo superior, Well, you just wait about a half century and an editorial temper tantrum later, and that'll fix it for you. Wanda says she'll do whatever he wants. And so, he writes a letter to the acting chairman of the Avengers to express interest in joining up. We go back to New York, where the Avengers have already pulled together a press conference to announce the situation. They're going to be changing their lineup, of course, starting with the addition of Hawkeye. Now, the press corps in attendance thinks that he'll make a great Avenger. Iron Man informs them all that they're still, you know, engaging in interviews for further new members. Now, after the press conference, our heroes dig into Willie Lumpkin's mailbag to check for some messages. And uh, Wasp thinks that this job is beneath a superhero, but uh, I'm guessing she doesn't put up too much of a fight. Let's jump back to the Amazon. Captain America and Rick Jones swing over a pond full of alligators, or maybe they're crocodiles, I can't tell the difference, but it's, uh, it's like they're in the game Pitfall or something. They then happen across a huge boa constrictor, and Rick is all, Kill it! Kill it! Uh, Cap tells him that it won't bother them if they don't bother it, and uh, that, my friends, is, uh, is one to grow on. They next find a white man um, who is being attacked by a leopard. Cap tosses his shield in the big cat's direction, clanging it right in its face. The man thanks him, and Cap is surprised that he's speaking English. Now, he takes this to mean that they're getting closer to civilization. Despite the fact that the natives who were bowing to them a few pages back, and probably many, many miles deeper into the jungle, were also speaking English. Oh well. Whatever the case, this white man loads our heroes into his jeep and drives them to the seaport of Karuka. From there, they'll be able to find easy passage back home. Now, a quick search of the word Karuka only brings up a solo golf cart, so I don't know. Uh, Now, speaking of seaports, let's shift scenes to one in New York. There, the Maximoffs are arriving to meet with Tony Stark. Now, Tony introduces himself as something of a financier for the Avengers, which I guess isn't a lie. Maybe it's a lie of omission, you know, but uh, it's, it's true, right? Uh, Wanda and Pietro then remove their long coats, revealing that they're already in their costumes. The press rushes in to snap a bunch of photos, uh, forgetting that they're mutants, who we are now told are universally feared and hated. Oh, well. 
One newsman asks Pietro to give a demonstration of his super speed, and he begrudgingly does. He, you know, he's like, this is below me, but uh, I will do it because I'm trying to uh, make a good impression. Now, he runs circles around Stark's big old boat of a car as it drives. He naturally gets to Avengers Mansion well before Tony and Wanda arrive in the car. Now, inside, Tony shakes Pietro's hand and wishes him luck before slinking into an adjacent room to change into his armor. Now, he thinks to himself that Hawkeye, Quicksilver, and Scarlet Witch will make fine Avengers, but he wishes that they could track down the Hulk and convince him to rejoin as well. From here, we jump over to LaGuardia Airport, where Cap and Rick arrive in a small jet, and then they proceed to drive back to Avengers Mansion. Once there, they see that the press has absolutely mobbed the scene. Easily a hundred reporters and Avengers fans have gathered here at their doorstep. Uh, Cap literally leaps over them into an open window to check out what's going on. Rick joins him moments later, and I'm assuming he didn't jump a full story to enter that open window. Which kind of begs the question as to why Cap wasted the strength to do so himself. Now the Avengers happily welcome Cap back. Nobody cares that Rick is with him, nor should they. Wanda and Pietro look on at this happy reunion and see just how different this team is from the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. Uh, you think? Um, anyway, after the dust settles, Iron Man informs Cap that he, the Wasp, and Giant Man are going to be leaving the team effective immediately. And these three goofballs, Hawkeye, Scarlet Witch, and Quicksilver, are going to be their replacements. Cap is unsurprisingly gobsmacked with this announcement. Now, outside, the journos talk about what a huge story this is, just as big as the last presidential election. Now, the most recent presidential election would have been 1964's, which uh, pitted Lyndon B. Johnson and Hubert Humphrey on the Democratic ticket versus Arizona's own Barry Goldwater, William E. Miller on the Republican ticket, wherein LBJ absolutely trounced the Republicans here. Um, This was 486 electoral votes versus... Goldwater's 52. Um, now, Goldwater literally won six states, all in the South plus Arizona, since that's where he's from. Now, elsewhere, the news of the Order Changer thing has reached many supervillains of the Marvel Universe. Enchantress wonders if uh, the Avengers will now be weaker or stronger. Now, the Executioner doesn't care who the Avengers are, so long as he can destroy them. Kang the Conqueror promises to strike again soon. The Mole Man says next time they clash, he'll defeat them, which is adorable. And Immortus vows never to rest until he beats them. Iron Man finally emerges from the mansion to make the big announcement. And that announcement is, of course, that the Avengers have a brand new lineup. And, as we know, it's Cap's kooky quartet. He tells the press that Cap and the gang will be out to make an official statement in the coming minutes. Back inside, Iron Man wishes the new team luck while expressing a little bit of sadness that he's no longer an active Avenger. Cap tells him, hey, you'll always be an Avenger and there will always be a place for him whenever he wants it. Iron Man leaves with one piece of advice. Find the Hulk. He then heads back into the meeting room where he, Janet, and Hank all leave. Now we close out with the Kooky Quartet making their public debut with Captain America belting out an Avengers Assemble to seal the deal. Next issue shows that Cap took Iron Man's advice to heart because the Avengers are going to search for the Hulk. But we'll have to take their word for it since we won't be reading that one. What we will be reading next time is the uh, arrival of the Juggernaut and what his uh, odd connection to Professor Xavier is. I mean, I'm sure none of us know, right? None of us know that story. So we'll all be learning this together 
next episode. But uh, for now, let's talk about the Avengers. I had a lot of fun with this one. I'm glad that we did it for the show here. Um, it does invite some like weird questions about um, what does it mean to be essential to the X-Men story, right? Um, I mentioned uh, probably several episodes ago, like I don't know what to cover in as far as uh, Pietro and Wanda are concerned after this point. I don't know if their story beats will be you know, essential to the X-Men uh, from this point on. Or if there are going to be certain stories we should make sure to cover, other stories we might not have to cover so much. I mean, I'm already worried about what happens when the Beast joins the Avengers and when, uh, you know, Beast, Warren, and Bobby join the uh, the Defenders and when they jump up, jump over to the Champions. Like, how much of that is essential to the, to the world that we're building here and the story that we're trying to share on the X-Lapsed family of shows? And, I mean, the easy answer is all of it. Right, but uh, I mean, that's, uh, we're talking thousands upon thousands of books, and uh, I mean, I'm only one man, and uh, uh, people ain't listening to the show as it is, so <laughs> it's a pretty big commitment to uh, to jump into something like that. But with that said, I think I'll have to rely on, uh, on the listeners here to let me know which stories we should be covering. Uh, I'm going to do my best to do as much research as possible. If something feels like it is essential to the story, I definitely want to include it. Otherwise, I mean, I'm, I'd be okay just doing a mention. Like, if we're covering an X-Men book, I wouldn't mind, you know, dropping a few lines about what Wanda and Pietro are up to over in, uh, over in Avengers or even elsewhere. But with that quandary out of the way, uh, let's talk about this issue here. I uh, mentioned how funny it was that, you know, Thor used uh, Plan D or Maneuver D or whatever, however he <laughs> phrased it. And uh, it tells us that the fourth course of action for the Avengers is to whisk people away to another dimension. Which, uh, a little extreme, a little convenient. Um, though, kind of tame when we uh, compare it to what Reed Richards is going to do in the uh, wedding issue of Fantastic Four a couple episodes down the line. That is also very, very convenient and uh, kind of extreme. But we'll get there when we get there. I love the idea... That the Avengers, who have been around for not very long I mean, there was no Marvel sliding timescale at this point So if Avengers number one was a year and a half ago We might assume that they've actually been Avengers for a year and a half Like when we're reading the X-Men We know that literally over a year has passed in the book Because they celebrated, you know, Jean Grey's one year anniversary Way early in the run, right? And then we had the, the team graduate So I mean, time is passing very quickly, probably in real time for uh, for back in the long ago here. But I love the idea that the Avengers are like, you know what? I'm tired of being an Avenger. Uh, how about we disband while we can? <laughs> you know, Thor's busy. Cap's not here. Oh, should we? Let, let's let's just disband. Let's uh, let's bar up the windows and get the hell out of here before anyone notices. I, I just think that's hilarious. I also think it's great how they just take the first three uh, characters that come to their door here. Uh, we don't know if they turned anybody down. We didn't get a look inside of uh, old Willie Lumpkin's mailbag there. But it's just great that, like, Hawkeye sneaks into the mansion, accosts their butler, fires a steaming arrow into a wall, and is like, no, no, guys, I'm here to join. <laughs> and they're all like, well, I'm sold. Sure, come on aboard. Then we get a pair of folks who, last we saw, were part of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. I mean, in this issue, the Avengers fought the Masters of Evil. So evil is a word they're aware of, right? So we have two members of the Brotherhood saying, Hey, we'd love to join too. We're, we're trying to turn over a new leaf. And 
sight unseen, they're invited to the mansion to to join up. It's a, uh, I don't know, it's just very very quaint. It's very charming. Um, and as silly as it is, I I can't help but to love it. Speaking of quaint, the uh, Captain America and Rick Jones bits were also quite quaint. Um, seeing the two of them do their best Pitfall Harry uh, impersonation, swinging uh, on vines over uh, crocodiles or alligators, is uh, fairly awesome. As is um, Cap suggesting that by hearing somebody speak English, that they're closer to civilization, despite the fact that they started their journey talking to people who speak English. It's <laughs> it's very silly. Uh, probably another one of those reasons why you should never edit your own work, right? Thought the art was nice, the story was nice. It was just a fun issue and a nice uh, bit of flavor to add to the uh, the X-Men lore here. I'm already looking forward to the first time they run into uh, Wanda and Pietro in their Avengers togs. Uh, they're going to be at the same party pretty soon, but they're not going to have... They're not going to cross paths. Uh, they're not going to see each other, really, at the uh, the wedding of Reed and Sue. But we will, of course, cover that just a handful of episodes down the line. But overall, like I said, it's a fun issue. It didn't feel like a slog at all, which um, is kind of unique for a book of its vintage. But, uh, I mean, if you're listening to this show, you've probably already read it, or you're at least familiar enough with it that you probably don't need to read it. But, um... If you are interested, I would uh, highly recommend checking it out. It's a nice, seminal bit of both Avengers, X-Men, and Marvel history, and uh, well worth a look. But that's all we got for today. The uh, mailbag is empty, so no mailbag today. And uh, if you'd like to be part of the mailbag, well, you know how to find me. Um, You can shoot an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can call the X-Lapse voicemail hotline at 623-396-JERK. You can head over to Chris's on InfiniteEarths.com for all the blog posts and show notes. You can join us on Facebook at 90s X-Men. And, of course, uh, head to ChrisandReggie.Podbean.com for all of the archives. It's available basically anywhere. If you're listening to this, you already found us. But uh, I would love for you to share the link if you are so inclined. But that's going to do it for today. I would like to thank you all so much for sharing some of your day with me. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya!
Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 18 of the Essential X Lapsed, where we are post-Magneto. We're going to be meeting some new threats, some new foes, some new friends. It's a... It's an exciting time to be, isn't it? Um, let's get right into it. This is X-Men number 12, had a July 1965 cover date. The story is called The Origin of Professor X. Written and edited by Stan Lee, layouts Jack Kirby, pencils Alex Toth, inks Vince Coletta, letters Sam Rosen, and colors... Well, maybe someone who might not want the credit this time out. Cover price, 12 cents American, and let's hop right in. Now... We pick up right where we left off last issue. If you remember, Cerebro was pinging like a son of a gun. Now, Cyclops and Xavier are there trying to, I don't know, panic with dignity, I guess? And then the X-Men barge back into the office. Now, Cyclops freaks out, because the other X-Men weren't supposed to know about Cerebro. And he plays it really cool, though. He says, hey, stay out, all of you. No one is supposed to know about the Professor's Cerebro machine. Real smooth there, Slim. Now, Xavier, he's he's cool with them knowing, or so he claims. Well, I suppose if he actually had a problem with it, he would, uh, he would have already taken them on a one-way trip to Mindwipe City, right? Anyway, at this point, Beast or Angel asks what the Cerebro machine does. We can't tell which one of them it is. They're mostly off-panel. It's just like their head. I'm going to guess that it's Angel asking the question. Now, Xavier shares how the cerebral sausage is made. Uh, you know, the whole thing about finding mutants and whatnot. But he says that this is a different sort of cerebral reaction. Uh, this one depicts a menace of indescribable power. And he instinctively knows who this must be. And so, he dispatches the X-Men to booby-trap the lawn before the baddie can arrive. So, we go outside... And I suppose instead of our obligatory danger room scenario, this will be the scene where the kids get to show off their powers. Now, Kid Cool sets up a thick ice shield around the perimeter of the school. Cyclops burns a moat or a trench around the school's walls. Beast runs a wire through that trench. Now, he's holding the spool with his feet, because I suppose that's the only way they can depict him as having uncanny powers in this situation. Jean then uses her TK to cover the trench with leaves and lawn debris, so... Yeah, she's basically raking. Angel then picks up some logs, which Cyclops hollows out with his optic blasts, and then they jam these hollowed-out logs upright into some holes in the lawn, which Angel then drops grenades into. Oi. <laughs> um, now, this entire endeavor takes the team five minutes, and I swear I've been describing it longer than that. Um, now, once done, they report back to the professor. It's at this point where Xavier reveals that this newest menace is... Well, not an evil mutant, but his own evil stepbrother. Okay, so Cerebro can just detect any old bad guy now? I, I guess we'll allow it, not that we have much choice. Now, Cyclops is shocked to learn this, which facilitates part one of Xavier's trip into flashback land. Now, his story begins with an atomic blast that occurred years ago at a lab in Alamogordo, New Mexico. Now, this is the blast that would kill his father, Brian Xavier. Oddly enough, this Alamogordo blast was the subject of my very first issue of X-Men, X-Men Volume 2, Number 13. Makes me wonder if maybe there's like a top-secret hazard cameo in this issue. And I'd have mixed feelings about that, because if there was, that would mean I no longer own his first appearance. And, uh, you know, I, I gotta have Hazard's first appearance. Anyway, we pick up at Brian Xavier's funeral, where Charles's mother Sharon is approached by Brian's old lab partner, Kurt Marco. 
Now Charles doesn't trust Kurt and wonders how he was able to escape this blast when his father couldn't. Now it's worth noting, this is, if I'm not mistaken, the first time Professor X's first name of Charles is revealed to the reader. Anyway, Kurt manages to weasel his way into Sharon's life, and in suggesting that Charles needs a father, somehow convinces her to marry him. And uh, he's such a nice guy that he even agrees to move into the Xavier mansion as to keep Charles comfortable. Well, then that just beat all. What a guy. Now, Kurt was clearly only into this relationship to get his hands on the Xavier wealth, and he's not even all that shy about admitting it. He's a horrible husband and a rotten stepfather. And then his son from his first marriage comes to live with him, and that, of course, is Kane. Now, Kane Marco is one ugly mug, uh, definitely like the, the no-nose mook stock character that we see a lot in the Silver Age. Uh, no sooner does he burst in the door than he reveals himself to be quite the a-hole. He biffs Charles in the head within seconds of meeting him. Back to the present, and Cerebro is screaming. Angel wonders what the big deal is. Kane Marco doesn't have any powers or anything, so it should be a cinch to take care of him. And by now, it's worth noting, Kane has reached Bobby's ice wall, and as always, he just smashes his way through it. The ice wall is is not effective. Um, now, the entire school begins to shake from the impact here, and a chandelier nearly crushes Jean, who was only protected by a makeshift Iceman igloo. So, while the X-Men look at the hulking monster who is stomping across their lawn at present, Xavier decides it's time to pop back into flashback land to continue his tale of woe. Now, his recollection jumps ahead a little bit. By now, his mother Sharon has died of a broken heart, which means that his inheritance is now controlled solely by Kurt Marco. He eavesdrops on a conversation between Kane and Kurt, wherein the former accuses the latter of being responsible for Brian Xavier's death back in Alamogordo. Kurt denies it and grabs his son by the collar. By now, Charles barges in, revealing that he heard the entire conversation, which is to say he heard a wild accusation and a denial. So, you know, not much. Um, Charles asks for some clarification, to which Kane grabs a bunch of combustible test tubes and smashes them into one another, causing an explosion and fire. <sighs> Kane and Charles are KO'd by the blast. Kurt manages to grab both boys and carry them to safety, but dies right after. Now, his last words to Charles confirm that the explosion at Alamogordo was, in fact, an accident, though he does admit that he might have been able to save Brian. He just didn't. Also, he warns Charles to beware of Kane, and alludes to the fact that Charles got himself an extra ability. And even Charles doesn't realize this just yet. Now we go back to the present, and the jug, um, our new baddie, <clears throat> has made it to the electrified moat. And it doesn't stop him from trudging ever forward. It does manage to slow him down long enough for Xavier to continue his flashback, though. And uh, so we go right back into it. Xavier recalls discovering his mutant ability which he blames on some ancient island which was split into two by a giant sword, and then half of that island was shoved into an interdimensional chasm. Oh, okay, okay, no, maybe not. He blames it on the radiation that his parents were exposed to while working on the nukes. He claims that the only outward sign that he was different was the fact that his hair fell out while he was a teenager. And hey, uh, my hair turned pretty much completely gray when I was a teenager. Maybe I've got some sort of mutant ability. Hmm, maybe. Now, we see Charles succeeding in basically everything he attempts, due largely to his extra powers. He gets great grades, he's great at sports, and as such, he kind of withdraws himself from any sort of competitive endeavor, fearing that he's 
subconsciously cheating. He does manage to bring home dozens of trophies, though, before throwing in the towel. And this gets under Kane's skin big time. Kane proceeds to destroy Charles's trophies, and Charles socks him in the face. Kane calls him a creepy punk, which is accurate, and perhaps a sign that Kane himself has some mental abilities. Speaking of which, Xavier then uses his mind-reading ability to know what Kane's next move is going to be, and so he deftly dodges a chop and goes ahead and delivers one of his own to the back of Kane's head, which knocks him out. Back to the present, the X-Men seem reassured that Kane isn't any match for their X-Powers, and yeah, they call them X-Powers. Iceman wonders why he's such a big deal, to which Xavier tells him that he ain't done telling his story just yet and quit interrupting. And so, back to flashback land. Kane and Charles are driving to college. Well, Kane is driving Charles there anyway. Kane is driving erratically, which winds up driving them right off a cliff. Now, as they tumbled, Xavier used his abilities to help Kane leap to safety, but he himself remained in the hoopty. In the present, the kids are all like, Oh, so that is how you lost the use of your legs. To which he asks them why they haven't yet read issue 9 of this series, because I thought that was all explained. Now, by now, the big bad has pulled himself out of the moat or trench gimmick, and he's approaching the grenade logs. Once triggered, they burst in his face, expelling sleep gas, which, as you might imagine, proves to be useless. He then reaches the second row of grenades, which are a little more effective, if only for obscuring his vision with clouds of smoke. Iceman, at this point, reinforces one of the shattered windows of the school with a sheet of ice. And Beast, he wonders just what it is that makes this Marco tick. And so, back into flashback land we go. Now, Kane and Charles were serving in the Korean War... Kane deserted under fire and found his way into a cave. Now, Charles rushed in after him to try and talk some sense into him, and uh, it was inside this cave that uh, Kane happened across the Lost Temple of Sidorak. He touches the crimson gem, bada-bing, bada-boom, whosoever touches this gem, yada, 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 and we got us a juggernaut. The cave collapsed. Xavier escaped. Though he remained worried what should happen should Kane ever manage to free himself, which you know, brings us to right now. So Xavier left his stepbrother to, uh, to die under this, uh, this cave-in. In the present, Xavier has the teens raise the steel inner wall of the school. Not sure why they waited until he was literally at their doorstep to do this, but whatever. I suppose it does give us some late-in-the-issue action, right? And also comedy, because uh, Warren, Bobby, and the Beast all rush off to be the one that erects the steel, and they crash into each other as though they were the Three Stooges. So anyway, the steel wall is up, but the visitor just proceeds to pound his way through. Iceman puts up yet another ice wall, both to protect the team and also, you know, put another obstacle between they and their visitor, and as you might figure, uh, he punches his way through that as well. Cyclops takes aim and blasts the baddie, but his beam just bounces off. And we wrap up with the Juggernaut confronting his stepbrother and vowing that this will be the last time that their paths cross. Next time out, we will wrap up our two-part Juggernaut story. Now, before we hop into the letters page here, I figured uh, maybe do like a mini fake-ass comics history here on uh, a little sit-a-rackiness here. Um, go to Strange Tales, number 128. September 1964 cover date. Stories called The Mystery of the Lady from Nowhere by Stan Lee and Steve Ditko. Now, this is a Doctor Strange story featuring a woman from nowhere who appears to be in a trance. Now, wanting to know more, Strange checks in with the Ancient One, who sends him back in time. 
he discovers that this woman was sent to the present from the past by a scorned ex-lover. Now, using the, quote, crimson bands of Sidorak, Doctor Strange is able to lift the spell and free the woman from the trance. She's revealed to have been Cleopatra. Now, it's a silly enough story, but worth noting for us that it's the first ever mention of Sidorak in Marvel Comics, and uh, used in quite the strange way uh, compared to what we know about it from this point on. From here, let's hop into the letters page here. We're going to start... Uh, these these letters are <laughs> a little bit annoying. Um, we're going to start with Marlene in Illinois. She's a student of evolution, and she hated the way it was depicted in X-Men number 10, which, of course, was the Savage Land issue. She says it made her cry. She asked Stan how much research he did on this story. And, I mean, come on, it's a friggin' comic book where teenagers stumble across a dinosaur world in the middle of the Antarctic. Uh, what kind of research can one hope to do for this? Anyway, I guess Stan bonered a bit here by mixing prehistoric periods. As Marlene puts it here, the... Eophippus couldn't have possibly existed alongside the pterodactyl. But also, um, they probably... Could, they, I mean, they couldn't possibly have lived in 1965, right? But that's beside the point. She goes into even greater detail, but I, I think we've poked enough fun at this one already. Now, uh, Stan responds in Stan fashion, claiming that he was too fixated learning how to spell the eras that he didn't bother to dig any deeper. He asked for a mea culpa, claiming that they were just proud that they remembered to include Iceman's booties this time out, which, I mean, that's just an awesome, awesome Stan reply there. And such a silly complaint, too. I mean, oh well, let's keep going. We got Tim in Tasmania. He says he loves the X-Men and says they're almost as good as the Fantastic Four, which kind of sounds like an insult. He uh, wants Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch to join the X-Men. He wants Marvel Girl to get more action. And he loves Kirby's work on X-Men, but says he needs to tighten up his pencils on Spider-Man. Whoops. <laughs> now, Stan informs Tim that the king doesn't draw Spidey. Patrick in Ohio loves Kazar, wants to see more of him. And he then criticizes Stan for mixing up prehistoric eras. Man, comic fans were always the smartest people in the room, weren't they? <clears throat> Stan apologizes, uh, confirming that uh, he couldn't find the Savage Land in any textbook to... Uh, to double-check any of that information, which is another great Stan answer. Raymond in Pennsylvania. Now, he's happy that Marvel revived another Golden Age hero in Kazar. Now, Kazar, a different Kazar, first appeared in Marvel Comics number 1 way back in 1939. Uh, this was a fellow named David Rand, who I believe was more of like a total Tarzan riff, right? I mean, even their names are similar. Now, Stan replies that all he remembers of the Golden Age version was... The name, which they decided to keep. As for everything else, Dan saith, I can't remember another blessed thing about him. I mean, he's, he's honest, and that's a, that's a good thing. Pete in Maryland. He loved X-Men issues 4, 6, 7, and 10. So I guess uh, 5, 8, and 9 can suck it. Uh, he likes Beast the best of all. And he likes the Brotherhood. He'd like to see them fight the Fantastic Four. He'd really like to know what Magneto looks like under Wolverine's toilet. And he wants to know if it's Submariner or Submariner. Stan confirms it's Submariner, which breaks, you know, 12-year-old Chris's heart. And he says he doesn't know what Magneto looks like under his helmet because they've never drawn him without it. So I guess uh, Pete's guess is as good as Stan's. Jonathan in the Bronx. No prize alert. No prize alert. Stan asks the fans why Bobby doesn't slip on his own ice slides. 
Now, Jonathan posits that Kid Cool can do so by controlling the temperature of the bottom of his feet. And that's good and scientific enough for Stan, so congratulations on your no-prize, Jonathan. Marty in Manhattan. He loves Marvel and thinks they're the best. He says he's often asked that, uh, well, as a 17-year-old, why he still reads comics. Ouch. Mm. Uh, Now, his reply to these uh, folks is that people enjoy hero stories and the idea of rescuing damsels from villains. Which is not a very current year statement now, is it? Finally, we have Walter in California. He can find no faults in the Savage Land issue, so I guess old Walt is not a student of paleontology. Uh, Loves Kazar and wants to see more dinosaurs in Marvel mags. Well, Stan scoffs at having to remember how to spell all of their names and suggests that if Kazar were to come back, he'll either be a Coney Island lifeguard or a locker room attendant at the Y. So those are the letters, and I swear I love the letters so much. They're, uh, they're so much fun to do these. Uh, just love being able to take the temperature of the uh, fandom of the day. It's uh, a lot of fun, a lot of fun, and uh, some of my favorite stuff to, to do and share. Uh, from here, we got our proto-bullpen bulletins, and we got some announcements. Uh, eight Marvel annuals will be hitting during the summer of 65. We got Fantastic Four, which we will be covering in depth during episode 20 of this show. Uh, Spider-Man Thor, Sergeant Fury, Marvel Tales, Kid Cult Outlaw, Millie the Model, and Patsy Walker's Fashion Parade. And uh, all of these will feature new stories as well as reprint material. In other news, uh, Strange Tales is bringing Nick Fury into the present with Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. And it's being printed in extra-large supply, but uh, rush to your newsstand anyway so you don't miss out. Next up, the mighty, mighty Marvel checklist here. Uh, Books coming out this month include Fantastic Four number 41, which features the brutal betrayal of Ben Grimm and the Inhumans. Spider-Man 27, The Secret of Frederick Foswell, and uh, he is, of course, spoiler alert, the big man. Avengers number 18, Avengers vs. the Commies. Thor number 117, which is listed as Thor number 18, and in it, Thor fights someone, naturally. Strange Tales 135 introduces, as mentioned, Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. Tales of Suspense 68 features Iron Man and Captain America doing stuff. Astonish, number 70, Namor and the Hulk, do stuff. And finally, in Sergeant Fury, number 20, the Howlers versus Baron Strucker and the Blitz Squad, again. So that, my friends, was X-Men number 12. What'd you all, uh, what'd you all think about that one here? Uh, I gotta say, it is refreshing to have a threat that isn't Magneto. Um, as much as I love Magneto, and I mean, we all love Magneto... It was getting a little bit played out, wasn't it? So this is a real, real nice breath of fresh air. And, uh, I mean, just the entire story, the way it was set up, was was very different from what we'd usually get here. Um, this actually felt kind of like, uh, like the first part of a two-part sitcom or something, right? We've got our characters assembled at the house. We got uh, some action. We got some comedy. We got flashbacks. We have a threat looming that's going to be paying off here. We got familial drama. We got a little bit of soapiness, right? A little bit of soapiness, which would, you know, go on to become a hallmark of the X-Men family of books here. Really fun story. And I I know I had a little bit of fun with it because, uh, I mean, these stories invite that, right? They are just a lot of fun, but also... There's a, there's a lot to have fun with here. Um, I mean, one of my main takeaways from this is, like, uh, Xavier's kind of a jerk, right? I mean, uh, Kitty wasn't lying when she said it. 
And I mean, that's not to say I'm, you know, Team Kane or anything, because he's he's pretty awful too. But leaving him to perish in a cave-in uh, was uh, maybe not so heroic. <laughs> not a very redeemable thing to do, leaving your stepbrother to perish, no matter you know what a knob he might be. It's uh, still eh, not a heroic thing. And according to this issue, it took Kane years, years to dig himself out of there. So. Uh, yeah, a little bit, a little bit crazy. Almost heroic in and of itself, right? We could look at the Juggernaut as being uh, the hero of this story for being able to save his own life. What else we got? Um, I'm still not entirely clear on why uh, Cerebro started pinging when Kane was a coming, unless I suppose we probably could explain it away that uh, Xavier had. Put his evil stepbrother's DNA into Cerebro Or some sort of a, uh, I don't know, findability measure So if his wicked stepbrother were ever to resurface Cerebro would pick up on him, mutant or not uh, Is that enough to get a no prize? I, I don't know Oh, and by the way, the uh, the more we go into these letters pages um, I can almost promise you, you're going to be tired of hearing the word no prize Because, boy, it's like they grow on trees As often as they're given out or asked for It's a, it's gonna become a thing <laughs> I'm pretty sure Oh, I know, we could talk about the art uh, This is, uh, I think this is the first issue Where Jack Kirby is not on pencils And instead is just doing layouts And we have Alex Toth here on art Who uh, I have some familiarity with uh, I wouldn't say that I'm any sort of Alex Toth historian or uh, base of knowledge, but I, I enjoy his work. I think it's very good here. I think it's going to be interesting to see how this is received in the letters pages later on, since the Kirby art is uh, kind of a contentious subject among the letter hacks of the day here. I mean, just just a few episodes ago, we had people claiming that Kirby wasn't even an artist, right? And then we've got others that say nobody but Kirby could do any comics. So it, uh, I think... The, the tothiness of this issue might come back up in the letters pages. I can only hope. Overall, I had a really good time with this one. Um, gave us a little bit of like a, a looming horror story, right? Um, very slow-moving, plotting villain who is just a, a monster. And uh, if I remember right, I think next issue really, really ramps up that sort of vibe here. We're going to have Juggernaut like slowly stalking the team just as... The unstoppable force that he is, but uh, really just taking his time and having fun just prowling and uh, and stalking the uh, good guys. So I'm really looking forward to that, and I hope you guys are as well. But I think that'll do it for today. Uh, before we get out of here, though, and before I give the contact information, I just want to say something about a review I just received on uh, Apple Podcasts here. I wasn't going to mention it on this show. I was going to save it for the main show since uh, even as few people as listen to the main show, it's it's more than what listen to the essentials here, but I figured I'd at least mention it. I got a one-star review for my negativity, and uh, that's kind of bizarre to me because usually I'm called out for being too positive or too forgiving on these books, but uh, maybe this... Uh, Maybe this person listened to an episode where I talked about X-Corp or something. I don't know. But um, I just wanted to say that, you know, I do end every single episode with ways to contact me, including a voicemail hotline. If my opinions don't line up with yours, rest assured that I am just an idiot with a microphone and uh, someone who is lucky enough to have a family who is patient enough to allow me to spend a couple of hours a day 
talking into it. My opinions are no more valuable than yours, and your opinions are no more valuable than mine. They are what they are. And if they don't line up, that's okay. And I invite you to enter into a dialogue here. And you, if you've listened to this show more than once, you'll know that I usually second-guess my opinions more than I second-guess anybody's opinions. And I always, always welcome dissenting opinions. In fact, I look, I look forward to dissenting opinions because I want to discuss things. I want to analyze things. I want to take things to another level. The entire point of this show isn't for me to get, like, comps from Marvel. It's not for me to get retweets from Teeny Howard or Jonathan Hickman. It's to start a conversation and have a conversation with friends. Whether we agree or disagree, it you know, really doesn't matter, as long as we're having a fun conversation about comic books. If I can open your eyes to something, or if you can open my eyes to something, well, that's what it's all about, right? If, uh, if you love X-Corp, I disagree. <laughs> if you don't like Way of X or Hellions... Again, I disagree, but we're allowed to disagree. So this is going out to anybody here. If if the person who gave me this review is is somehow still listening, this goes to you as well. Before you run off and try to hurt my show, the thing that I spend so much time, effort, passion, and love on, before you go and do that, maybe shoot me an email, and we can talk about this stuff when our opinions don't line up. I love having those conversations. Those are some of the funnest things to do when we, when we disagree and we can actually try to see things through someone else's prism. That's, that's the fun part of being part of a community, being part of a silly little book club talking about comic books. And I mean, we all have our biases, which is usually why I preface many of my complaints with, this might just be a Chris problem. That's acknowledgement that I am just an idiot with my own biases. And uh, that my opinion is not an all-inclusive, it's not a blanket statement, it's not something that represents anybody but me. So I guess I'll just wrap up there just uh, by asking if anybody has a problem with any of my opinions here, do me the kindness of reaching out and entering into a discussion so we can talk about these things rather than running off to a review aggregate where you can actually do harm to this project that I have invested thousands of hours into. But with all that said, I think we are done here for today. Uh, as I mentioned, I think during the Pride of the X Labs episode, and if you listen to that one, I do appreciate it. I'm thinking about deep sixing the uh, the social media for a bit here. It's uh, really not doing me mental health much good. So uh, until a firm decision's made on that, you could find me there on Twitter at Ace Comics. Uh, you can give a call to the x voicemail hotline at 623-396-JERK, which, I mean, doesn't that say a thing or two about what I feel about my opinions and my uh, position as a uh, as an authority in this field? Uh, also, you could shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. For blog posts and show notes, you can head over to chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can also head over to Facebook. Our little group is 90s X-Men. Finally, chrisandreggie.podbean.com for all the noise. And uh, as much as I hate to ask if, uh, if anybody out there would like to counteract a one-star review, <laughs> I would love for you to do so on iTunes. It would really, really mean the world to me. But that is where we'll leave it for today. I would like to thank you all so much for continuing to allow me to be a part of your day every so often. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.